1: I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet.
0: Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Tony Black. Hi
1: Tony, how are you? I'm pretty good, Duncan. I'm looking forward to uh, part two, round two. Um, <laughs> of our, uh, Picking up of where our, we left off yes. last time we,
0: we went nearly two hours, I think, on part one uh, of this episode or, or part one of this topic So uh, I, I don't think we're going to manage that a second time round I kind of hope not But we, we'll see what we manage to pull out of the back half of Picard season one Certainly some pretty big, I would say Or at least one, for me, very, very hefty uh, influence um, That I think kind of comes into its own a bit in the second half of the season
1: yeah, you, you've totally jinxed it now, though. This is going to be a three-hour podcast. You know, just <laughs> brace yourselves, everyone.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see.
1: <laughs> well, if it is, you're going to have to edit it down. Yes. So, you know. Yeah, so it's in my best interest. We'll, we'll yeah. see. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so last episode, we talked a little bit about the first half of the season from the, those kind of three pilot episodes through um, Absolute Candor and Stardust City Rag. I almost forgot the name, even though it's, it's that episode is burned into my brain. Um this time around, we're looking at the kind of latter part of the season. Now, I don't know whether it makes sense necessarily to go episode by episode. I mean, I think absolutely we'll we'll deal with the finale, the two-part finale is kind of one thing. The three that lead up to it, I mean, Nepenthe is a bit of an outlier, but I wonder if it makes more sense to sort of take it in terms of the plot that's being picked up there, which I think the, the, the big kind of plot that's really being developed is this plot with Soji and the Borg Cube, uh, I'd say, which is kind of... You know, threaded through the season as a whole, but Impossible Box and then Broken Pieces are the two episodes where I think that plot really comes to a head. And the Penthe as well, because, you know, she has a lot of interesting stuff, so she does in the Penthe, aside from all the, you know, kind of next gen nostalgia that's going on there. But this is really the point where her story kind of comes to the fore. And I think for a lot of people, it's the point where that story started to work as well. I mean, I didn't mind the Borg cube sections in the earlier episodes but i saw a lot of people online saying oh god you know when are we going to get back to picard i don't care about these people on this board cube impossible box was the one where i think they kind of sold it a little bit more they sold that storyline and partly by putting a bit of meat into it really
1: it felt like everything up to that point was treading water to some extent it was it was It's strange looking back on it actually because you realize how much of a diversion it kind of takes over absolute candor and stardust city rag and how it is as we talked about in the last episode you know they're they are important episodes in gathering some of the pieces together of the characters and you know advancing certain like the maddox storyline but at the same time you could have really combined some of that and done it in a different way and and in a way you could almost skip to from The End is the Beginning to Impossible Box almost and you could have worked it so you you didn't necessarily have to go on those tangents. So it does feel like you have the first three episodes, you have a couple of little swerves around and then you get to Impossible Box and it kind of does that. It's it's almost like if you were going to brand the Picard as being part of a um, sort of a 90s TV series where you'd have the mythology episodes and you'd have episodes that forwarded the narrative. Impossible Box is that. It gets back to the core of the story and it, and by the end they're in a different place than they were at the beginning and that hadn't really happened since the first three episodes it was treading water it was spinning its wheels and then this one they're off at the races. Suddenly it kind of
0: uh, kicks into gear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing um, about the impossible box, I suppose, is there is literally an impossible box in it, which is effectively a kind of Romulan Rubik's Cube. I quite liked this. I mean, you know, just because we're looking for little uh, references and so on. I-, I love the kind of, I don't know what they were. I was going to say tarot cards, however you describe it, that kind of weird game uh, thing. That, yeah. Uh, Ramda the the auntie oh yeah auntie Ramda (laughs) auntie Ramda Ramda was playing um, (laughs) earlier on in the season but particularly this kind of Rubik's Cube box really appealed to me and I quite I I, I don't know generally speaking I think both the show and also Una's book which we mentioned last time um in particular, really done quite a lot at kind of um giving us little glimpses into Romulan culture, um, which are kind of interesting. I love that thing about the door being round the side of the house that no one has their front door at the front of their house. You know, these kind of little cultural insights, which um I don't know if we could say they're necessarily borrowed. I mean, I, I have no idea if there is anywhere on earth where a custom like that exists. But they they to me they have a kind of vaguely there's a slight sort of Orientalist flavour to it, yeah. if you know what I mean. What it makes me think of, at least, is those maybe not actual sort of Chinese stories or whatever, but kind of European stories about uh, the, the mysteries of, of the Far East. Do you know what I mean? There's a slight element there. And again, maybe with that um, ritual that uh, Narek puts Soji through, something about the whole, you know, taking off your shoes and the, the, the way they walk around this room, it, it has a slight kind of sort of, generalized Eastern feel to it, I suppose, which is interesting because it's not something that necessarily I would have associated with the Romulans before. Although on the other hand, you could say, you know, the Romulans as these Cold War enemies, this mysterious, you know, they are almost, I don't know, North Korea or something. Um, do you do you know what I mean? In that they have this kind of powerful empire, they have this kind of uh, weaponry and so on, but actually we know very little about them. They're very secretive. They're very kind of closed off. So, you know, maybe that's something that's been there in Star Trek for a while, but it it surprises me whenever we do get to see glimpses of that in the show, glimpses of this culture, whether it's in their games, whether it's in their... Uh, you know, architecture and house design,
1: you know, whatever it is that we're kind of being fed on that. Picard went into detail with this stuff though, way more than any other show has. I mean, in in the past we've had these, we've had the Romulans as, like you say, there is definitely a Far Eastern kind of aspect to them in that they were, you know, as we've said probably on this podcast before, that if the Klingons were the Russians, then the Romulans were the Chinese, you know, initially in the 60s. And in, in the 90s, it was a little bit less defined in that sense. But there was still that idea, I think, of that vaguely, like you say, Eastern aspect to them, that mystery, that enigma. But then on the one hand, they've got the architecture of ancient Rome and they have this particularly empirical sort of, roman aspect to them which is obviously where the whole name of them comes from so they're a weird blend in a way of that kind of um all uh, uh, spanning kind of empire and at the same time this very sort of closed off isolationist enigmatic culture so picard really cracks the window open on that and and he and he adds like you say like the card game like Narek's ritual here that it adds inflections that don't, I don't think they contradict anything we've seen before with the Romulans, but they do, they do deepen the culture. And I think, if anything, they make them, they make them a little bit more of a mystical culture in this sense than they were before. You know, before I always just got the impression they were this, like you say, this cold power um, on the other side of like a, a, a space sort of iron curtain and that they were, you know, very guarded about. Who they were and what their aims were, but they were essentially a very sort of nebulous expansionist kind of empire that were frustrated by the federations that have been in their way. But this this series has presented them as quite a and whether it's just the Zatvash aspect that we've seen in that it's this cult essentially, or, or and that may not be representative of the entire culture, but from what we've seen, there is much more of a deliberately deliberately mystical aspects of their culture that he's interested in prophecy and is interested in myth and legend than I think we've seen before. And that uh, that was one of the – even though some of the Romulan stuff in this season wasn't particularly great, in my opinion, with some of the characters, I think that aspect I found really intriguing. And in some ways maybe it makes sense because we've seen the Vulcans,
0: who are obviously the kind of cousins of the Romulans – have a lot of mysticism of their own, as much as they're very logical and rational, and so on. They they have all these kind of rituals and all these kind of um, I, I don't know. Again, there's that there's that kind of mystery and that mysticism ar- around them. Um, and the Romulans we've seen in the past have been the military commanders kind of on the front lines effectively you know patrolling the border doing that sort of thing so we haven't seen that much of actual Romulan society one way or another <laughs> uh, largely through the Romulans choice that they don't want us to I mean even in Nemesis there's kind of a bit of a sense of that isn't it that they're you know they're going um, they're going to Romulus they're going into the Romulan senate and all this and that being quite a a big deal one way or another. I mean, I think it's interesting. I suppose Discovery has sort of reinvented the Klingons to some extent. Picard has kind of reinvented the Romulans. To me, the reinvention of the Romulans is more successful than the reinvention of the Klingons, or at least more in- is more interesting to me. It, it appeals more to me. Um, maybe that's easier because we knew so little about them. To begin with, even if some of the things we didn't know about them may seem to, you know, in various ways contradict or, or slightly undermine some of the things we're learning about them here. Like um, there's that line that lots of people pointed to in The Defector, I think, where a Romulan says uh, to Data, oh, our, our um, cyberneticists would love to get their hands on you. And people were sort of saying, you know, how do you reconcile that with this idea that, you know, on Romulus, there is no such thing, uh, which didn't, didn't particularly... Bother me. I mean, I guess you could say if there isn't any such, their their cyberneticists are probably like Dr. Girati. You know, barely able to do anything, and therefore, if an actual android comes along, that would kind of make sense. But generally speaking, I think for me, the kind of Romulan stuff worked well, and it didn't. It didn't seem to contradict anything that we previously knew about them from Star Trek. Despite the fact that we had seen a fair amount of a certain aspect of Romulan society, and it certainly gave a hint of a kind of. Much greater depth, sort of beneath the surface, than maybe we'd ever
1: glimpsed before. Mm, yeah, absolutely. No Remans, though. No, <laughs> yeah, still no Remans. <laughs> but I think that that line about <laughs> we're waiting for season two on <laughs> that. I? I think we'll be waiting a long time. That those those cyberneticists. That cyberneticist line from the Defector is one of those things where I think you've got to be a real stickler for canon and for continuity, completely making sense in across all Star Trek. For that to really leap out, and and I, it's one of those things where. You know, I've said before on this podcast, I, I I love continuity as much as the next man. I really do. But y- you, you're talking about a line that was written 30 years ago in in an episode that it was by a completely different staff at a completely different era. And I think you've got to to be beholden to what is actually a really interesting idea, even if necessarily the execution of this whole thing hasn't been perfect. The idea of what they wanted to do with the Romulans here was great. It was different. It was unique. It was quite interesting. So to be to be turning around and saying, you know, for Michael Chabon and everyone to turn around and go, no, we can't do that because of a line in episode ten of season three of Next Generation <laughs> would be is exactly where canon can become limiting. So I'm glad, I'm glad they didn't really hold to that and they went, they went and they 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 went into this. And whether in the end a little bit the Zatvash sort of falls apart into nothing, the fact they 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 attempted to explore Romulan culture like this. All power to them, and I think, yeah, like you, I think it works. I think it's, I I think, I think, unlike the Klingon reinvention, which did have interesting ideas in discovery about, you know, fundamentalism and, and you know, warring different tribes and things like that. I think it wasn't as well thought through. So by the time that that all came to a head, it felt a little bit like it was multiple different ideas clashing. Whereas with this, it feels like they thought through everything they wanted to do with the Romulans from the beginning to the end of this season. So. Yeah, it worked for me. If anything, I was a bit disappointed that as the season went on, I felt like we were
0: learning less about them. I suppose after the Impossible Box, we don't really learn anything new about the Romulans, which is one reason maybe why this is a good episode to focus that sort of element on. It just struck me, as well as the Impossible Box, obviously referring to that kind of Rubik's Cube-like toy it's almost also refers to that, that room that soji is put in where she goes to that test is is almost like a kind of version of that itself insofar as you know it's a cube within a cube within a cube i mean you, you know you could say the the ball cube is kind of a almost a rubik's cube mystery um of its own i saw um someone online when that uh, episode came out commenting that maybe it was rather risqué to write an episode all about this guy trying to get to the depths of this woman he was sleeping with and calling it the impossible box so you know there's (laughs) kind of another element of Soji is not only the, the little girl that you know the kind of ballerina figure that pops up when you solve the puzzle but you know on a less crude level it's you know she is sort of the mystery that has to be disassembled or taken apart or kind of solved one way or another by you know whether by Narek or by her and i think they do sort of play with that insofar as you know in this dream she sees herself as uh not quite an automaton she sees herself as a kind of a mannequin um like an artist's uh mannequin effectively but you you know again this kind of old-fashioned wooden object there's something there in these kind of mysterious
1: material objects somehow that's that's Transferring across, mm, yeah, I think I think that's true, really, and I think it's it's again, it's you know, I'll, I'll give them credit for titles in that they in that they tried to make put 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 across titles that had layered meanings, and I think by and large, for a fair few of these titles, and you know, we talked last week about how we were trying to decrypt Stardust City Rag, and we, we still quite haven't really. This one's a little bit more, a bit easier to sort of latch onto. So yeah, I think it works on those levels. Now
0: let's talk about what I think is probably the single biggest influence on this season overall. And it's a film which I know we have wildly diverging opinions on. This film is probably my favourite film of all time. And I know that, Tony, you can't stand it. Um, So (laughs) we may have interesting uh, different opinions on the ways in which it's influenced this season of Picard. But the film is Blade Runner. And I think the more that you go back and watch these two things side by side, the more the parallels between them Uh, comes to the fore i mean it struck me even watching the pilot even watching the first episode remembrance that dodge in that storyline brings blade runner to mind because of this key idea that comes up in blade runner of the android that doesn't know that it's an android basically i mean for anyone who hasn't isn't familiar with blade runner first of all uh ignore anything tony's about to say (laughs) go away and watch it you know it's mind-blowing and amazing but the the core kind of philosophical problem of that film, I guess, is the idea that they have these replicants, these androids that know that they're androids and that have kind of gone rogue. They're effectively the rogue since and they've come back to Earth from, again, from Mars, I think. And certainly they're being used on Mars. They've come back and they're causing trouble and killing people and so on. And they have to be retired in the parlance of the film, basically killed by um, the Blade Runner, uh, played by Harrison Ford but quite early on in the story he encounters a sort of femme fatale character this woman Rachel who he discovers is actually a replicant but doesn't realize it and he he kind of you know reveals to her essentially um that this is the case but there's this core question which he asks um someone else in the film he he says how can it not know what it is and that's the kind of real quandary of the the sort of philosophical quandary of the film is this idea that you might you might be an android and not know it to the point where the film itself ends on this kind of question mark around whether deckard might himself be a replicant and there are kind of clues that he, that he is particularly in the director's cut of the film apparently interestingly no one in the no one in uh, england or america picked up on this in the director's cut, but when they screened the original cut for French audiences, they all came out of the cinema saying, oh, it's obvious he's a replicant anyway, even without this kind of extra stuff being chucked in to put that in the viewers' minds. And this, it's a question that goes back to the novel as well that the book is based on. It's based on a novel by Philip K. Dick called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And in that there's quite explicit, um, there's another Blade Runner character who is in fact a replicant, not Deckard, not the not the character played by Harrison Ford in the film. But there is a lot of discussion back and forth about whether Deckard might be a replicant, whether someone who basically goes around killing these effectively sentient androids has to effectively be a bit of a psychopath themselves, you know, almost by definition. So this is the core question, I suppose. And as soon as you get a character uh, like Darge in Remembrance, who is an android and doesn't realise she's an android and has to go through that process of uh, understanding that and working out what that might mean, that kind of threw up massive uh, Blade Runner sort of flares for me. I mean, we've seen it in Star Trek before with Juliana Tayner in Inheritance. They kind of did a riff on that idea. But I think that's really only the beginning of it. And as you watch going through the season, the way they develop that story, we almost have the kind of dumb show version with Dodge and then we get the kind of real meat of it with Soji where that, that realisation and the processing of that is much more drawn out. The kind of Blade Runner parallels again sort of keep coming to
1: the fore. Okay, so not that, <laughs> <laughs> not that this is going to be a massive interest to many people, I imagine, but let me just clarify something. I wouldn't say I hate Blade Runner. I'd say that I find it quite tedious and dull in terms of... And I've tried about three or four different times. I've tried both different cuts and I still find it quite dull. Now, it's, it's personal taste. I think I can I can definitely appreciate that it's a beautiful looking film. It's very impressive. It's seminal in terms of the science fiction genre, you know, at the start of the 80s and, and what it's inspired over the over the years, you know, uh, so I, I absolutely understand why most people love this film to bits, like yourself, Duncan. And I want to get there one day, and uh, <laughs> so hopefully I will. But I think for me, I think the ideas in it are a bit more interesting than the execution of it. Ultimately, you know, what the, the things you've just talked about are fascinating, and they, I mentioned last week how much I've felt like picard has been playing in a similar wheelhouse as westworld the the tv series and westworld absolutely that was based on a movie in the 70s but that absolutely is taking a cue from this very similar idea about you know what what is real what isn't you know in this case they are they're called hosts but they're androids they're the same thing so so they're they're all they're all playing with this similar idea of of who am i what am i and i think with soji in this season it's there is a lot else... It, does, it can't really get into that in the depth that something like Westworld would, because that has the space, really, to kind of... Ex- even though there's a lot going on, it does have the space to explore the philosophical idea behind it a little bit more than Picard does, because Picard has got to service a lot of other stuff. But I think it is there in this season with Soji, and and once once she starts to really understand... And The Impossible Box is that episode, really, where it starts to unlock, you know, and she starts to really understand who or what she is. And then Nepenthe is her trying to adjust and come to terms with that a bit more as he's broken pieces in the rest of the season. But yeah, I think I think Blade Runner is a good is a good comparison. It's a good touchstone for this, and I think it's it's something that I mean I mean the, the ultimately the, in future seasons, I imagine that they might do with Soji a similar story that they did in a way with Data, but just updated for the modern day. Because they the mystery is gone now. We know we know who we know what she is. We know where she came from. So they can play out a different kind of thing. I think with her now potentially in season two. But I think in this, it, it, the fact that that's all part of the mystery is is an interesting and definitely a very Blade Runner esque kind of thing. It just doesn't have the ambiguity like you say at the end of Blade Runner. That is a fantastic. That is one of the great movie moments. You know, he's Deckard, a replicant. Um, you don't quite get that at the end of Picard. He's Sogia. And Android or not, we know she is. So it would have been, it would have been almost quite nice if they'd done a similar story like that, where you weren't sure <laughs> and that she wasn't sure at the end of it. Um, the the big the big thing I, the only thing I really felt was, ultimately, a bit of a false note. And I don't know what you think about this. Is that is the idea that she's Data's daughter? I I don't really think that's true, really. I think I think it's a reach to sort of assume that she's Data's daughter. Yes, she has the same kind of positronic neuron, and she was built from his template essentially. But can you really, you know, in my in my head, LAL was in the offspring was Data's daughter, or a daughter of Data. I feel like she's more you know, part of the Sung family, if you like, as opposed to being the daughter of Data. So that was a bit of a false note for me, really. Yeah, I I totally understand that. I mean, she's Data's daughter. I think we have to understand
0: she's Data's daughter in the sense that she is made from a part of Data. But then it kind of raises the question, okay, so she looks like the character that Data painted 30 years earlier or whatever. And that suggests that, so Maddox and Sung obviously created a body for her that matched that painting. She wasn't the first, as far as we know, android that they... Well, maybe she, maybe she was. Maybe they made her before they made that uh, saga, the English one, basically. I mean, I mean, you know, there are other models of androids that don't look like anything painted by Data, as far as we know. But I think it, it's more that the show wants us to see her as Data's daughter and to kind of use that to get at this question of what does Data mean to Picard? And, you know, you've got that beautiful scene in Broken Pieces where they're um, talking about Picard's love for Data and, as it turns out, Data's love for Picard. And you can kind of only... I don't know if you can only do that if you set her up as his daughter, but that's kind of hinging on the idea that she's family. And I suppose, again, in Nepenthe as well, Riker and Troy are kind of... I'm sure they'd be welcoming to her anyway, but they're sort of particularly welcoming to her because they recognise her as almost a part of their extended family somehow. And that whole side of it, I suppose, is a side that is not in the kind of Blade Runner mould at all, insofar as that's much more, you know, when you say it doesn't end on, you, you know, I mean, Blade Runner famously ends on this, this is a spoiler obviously if you're going to go and see it but, <laughs> but the the key thing that makes Deckard in the film think that he might be a replicant is the fact that he's been having this dream about a unicorn and then this mysterious policeman played by Edward James Olmos from Battlestar Galactica in later years uh, leaves this little he's been making these origami creatures all throughout the film and he leaves a little um unicorn for him which kind of you know hints at the idea that he you, you know that his dream is a sort of has been implanted in the same way as rachel has these memories that are not her memories um and that she's sort of trying to work out well where do you know where does the programming end and i begin essentially and then the film ends with this very dramatic music and kind a of door slamming and it is it, it's just a very kind of it's, it's like this final revelation right at the last minute it's very as you say it's a great moment it's very well handled it's very on star trek i mean star trek wouldn't do that kind of thing. I don't think really Star Trek has to go in a more optimistic direction. It has to go in a more kind of, I was gonna say cuddly, but you you, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is an element of that friendship and camaraderie mm. and family and all these sort of things. Whereas Blade Runner ends with them basically on the run and disappearing. I don't know. I haven't seen the sequel yet. So, you, you know, don't tell me. I, Obviously, I assume he wasn't a replicant because if he was, then he wouldn't still be around. I'm not
1: saying later, anything.
0: But, you, know. <laughs> you gotta watch it. I, I, I love the original so much that I struggle with the idea of there being a f- sequel to that film, but you know, I hear good things about it. But I think this, you know, this idea of not just, not just borrowing from Blade Runner in terms of this central idea of, the replicant who doesn't know she's a replicant, but also the fact that she's in this relationship, this quite strange relationship with someone who is effectively a rep. I mean, Narek is effectively a Blade Runner. His job is to kill androids, um, you know, and Narissa as well. They're basically a pair of Blade Runners, effectively, in those terms. He's having this weird kind of twisted relationship with Soji, uh, where he's gaslighting her. He's, you know, he's pretending. That's one of the things I think is the most uncomfortable about it. I mean, first of all, obviously, he's sleeping with her under false pretenses and so on and doing all this stuff to use her. But he's also, the thing I find the most creepy about it is the way he's sort of saying... Well, there's something weird about this. You, you know, I've noticed that you always speak to your mother for the exact same amount of time. It's, he's playing this sort of innocent, curious person investigating her to kind of nudge her in this direction. It's really unpleasant. And they call her... um Rafi refers to Narek as the abusive boyfriend at one point. You know, so there, there's definitely a sense of he's... You, you know, it's not just as they talk about in Nepenthe, they talk about, you you know, is she being tortured? Is her sense of reality being undermined? A bit like we had with Picard and his four lights or whatever. But there's also the fact that this is in the context of a relationship. She thinks he's in love with her. You know, he is this sort of ultimate abusive boyfriend in a way. Now in Blade Runner, you have this weird relationship between Deckard and Rachel where it's sort of romantic. It's kind of, I mean, she's sort of this femme fatale figure. She's sort of the romance of the film. There's also... A a scene where he comes off as kind of, kind of a quasi rapist, really, in the way that there's this weird scene where he's sort of, you you know, does she want to go? Does she want, you know, does she want to be with him or not? All the kind of power dynamics and all the stuff around it is very uncomfortable. And there's, I suppose, this sense that is she just this machine to be used, or is she a person with her own rights? Do you know what I mean? And I guess that sense of like um, treating a person as an object, obviously, if the person is an android are you treating and you know it sort of raises all these different questions um i don't know if you watched the tv series humans but that kind of went into that a lot with these in particular this idea of you know these people having sex with their androids um who turned out to be sentient or these kind of um basically sort of prostitute androids um and in the movie blade runner again you know some of the replicants that deckard is going to hunt down are what they call pleasure models that are sent off for the soldiers or whoever it is to sleep with effectively so there is this kind of weird link i suppose between sex and power and violence and all these sort of things and it just strikes me that this story is never done uh I i mean it is done to an extent with deckard there's this kind of question mark over deckard but this story of someone realizing they're not who they thought they were you know that they're not human seems to be one that's always pinned on a kind of youngish woman and i don't know you know, what that is saying. Is it saying that, so, you, you know, the character who on some fundamental level doesn't know who they are always ends up being this sort of ingenue, or maybe not an ingenue in the case of Blade Runner, but, you know, a, a, a young woman. And in the book of um, in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, again, the character of Rachel is, is described as being very young. Uh, she's slightly less... The woman in the film, she's got a slightly kind of vampy quality with her hair and everything. So I think that kind of cast her slightly differently but in the book she's very much young lithe compared to even all the other replicants the the, the sort of sense of her youth is is accentuated so again there's a kind of i don't know almost a level of innocence to it but then we find out that actually she's an active member of this sort of cell of um you know sort of Nefarious replicants, but her job is to seduce the blade runners and sleep with them, so she is this kind of femme fatale um after all and I suppose there's that that's the sort of question for Narek maybe, and his sister is encouraging him to see soji as a monster to see her as a thing, to see her as the enemy. You know she says at one point, are you sure that you're not uh, that she's not playing you basically are you sure that you're the one controlling this situation because they can't help seeing her as this sort of diabolical uh, evil force, essentially. Whereas I suppose we're seeing her as this quite vulnerable, um, innocent, you know, particularly as I say, again, when we get to Nepenthe and we sort of see the ramifications of this discovery for her and how difficult it is to process emotionally. You know, we see her very much as the victim. They see her as the enemy.
1: Yeah, and, and I think part of, the, part of the reason that I think Nar- Narissa and Narek are the weakest link in this entire season is that they, they don't get a Nepenthe in the sense that Soji gets that episode in which she can start coming to terms and discuss that and think about that and actually, you know, decrypt it almost and process it. Whereas there's no equivalent sort of episode or or real proper moment, bar one or two flickers, where Narissa or Narek are truly characterised over why they're doing what they're doing. You know, you get a scene with Narissa and Ramda where you find out she's their aunt, and there's a little bit there you see in flashback that, in broken pieces, that Narissa was there when they found the admonition and all this kind of stuff. She had the vision and stuff like that, and probably the most telling scene in terms of Narik psychology is in the fina- in finale part one, in uh, where he taught he tells the myth of of the destroyer to the others, um, to Rafi and Rios and Co. But it all feels a little bit like you spend a lot of the season. Trying to everything's so mysterious, and what they're doing is so mysterious that it, it it's it, they struggle really to properly characterize them as people with motivations, tr- interesting and and logical motivations for me. So you don't get the flip side of it. Narek is just the abusive creep, basically, and there there are lines or there are moments that try and explain some of the behaviour, you know, and, they're, and it feels like towards the end of the season they're almost trying to paint Narek as being a possible redemptive character who could be it might if not the hero then somebody you know, I mean Narissa's they, they I think they pretty much guess that she's beyond hope basically so that's why they kill her off but they they feel like maybe Narek isn't but like you say he's he's he is uh, grooming Soji essentially in many ways And that is a bitter pill to swallow, particularly when you don't really understand beyond some, you know, myth, why, why they would go down this road and why they do it. So I think that, that was a bit of a problem in terms of really selling the idea. And this, what could have been a quite a complicated exploration of, of that kind of manip, sexual manipulation that goes on, you know, in, in the real world, especially, you know, and is more highlighted in this day and age among society. But it doesn't really it can't really get there. And it's more focused on the mystery behind what Soji might do. And I feel like it misses a little beat there, to be honest. And it could have it could have got into that more. It's hard
0: to know though, because I remember, you know, as we were approaching the end of the season, some people online were sort of saying God, I hope we don't get a redemptive arc for Narek. Basically, he's beyond the pale. I don't want to see him redeemed. You know, I don't care if he feels guilty about it. He's just a despicable character. And I think it it is interesting, you know, yes, in a sort of post me Too world, maybe there are elements of that storyline that get highlighted that otherwise wouldn't be. I mean, I think absolutely the kind of Blade Runner parallels between Narek and Deckard are there insofar as Deckard is notionally the hero of the story but there are reasons why those french audiences felt that he was essentially inhuman himself because he's very there's a kind of cruelty to him there's a kind of callous side to him i mean okay his job is going out and killing people so he's a bounty hunter it's there's violence is sort of baked into it but he can be kind of he's got and harrison ford is brilliant i think in that role he has a kind of casual cruelty to him particularly for example there's a scene the scene in um The Impossible Box, where Soji is, you know, carbon dating or whatever she's doing, all her belongings and going through all these old photos and so on, again is kind of lifted straight out of Blade Runner in that there's this whole thing about all these old photos that Rachel has and the memories that she has and she's sort of trying to cling onto this and sort of saying, you know, where has all this come from or whatever? And Deckard in this quite cruel way, sort of, um, recites a load of memories that he knows that she's been given that actually aren't her memories. They're actually the guy who runs the company that makes the androids, nieces, memories, um, including one which again has a sort of vaguely sexual thing, which is about when she was a child and uh, you, you know, she and her brother were playing doctors and nurses or something. And there's this kind of humiliation somehow in the way that he, he knows all of this and he just recites it back at her. And she is in tears and really. You know, it's a complete kind of uh moment of breakdown in a way. And then he sort of tries to brush it aside and says, Oh, it's just a bad joke. He, you know, tries to sort of say, I didn't I didn't mean it, I didn't say any of that. But at the same time, there is this kind of sense of cruelty. There is this kind of sense of there is something abusive to that character, I would say. Not as not as obviously not in this kind of explicit in this sort of me Too, post me Too way that we might understand Narek. But you know, ultimately, both Deckard and Narek are faced with the same mission. I mean, Deckard's uh, job is to retire to kill Rachel. She's one of the ones on his list. Uh, Narek is essentially supposed to be killing Soji. And indeed, he does try to kill her. At the end of Blade Runner, I suppose there is an element of redemption because Deckard doesn't uh, kill her, he runs off with her. So he sort of ultimately is redeemed, I suppose. Ultimately, he kind of makes that Decision, Narak. We don't really see that. All we see is that moment where he kill he kills her as he thinks, and then is obviously distraught and has tears running down his face and so on. So it's kind of an. Int- I think it's kind of an interesting choice in a way that we don't get a clear redemptive arc. Yeah, he sort of teams up with our heroes towards the end, but again, he sort of is carrying on being pretty shady and sort of despicable and a bit of a dubious character and of course we don't ever really find out what happens to him I mean various people sort of saying what happened they kind of dropped the ball with Narek because they never included anything in that finale does he get you know does he go off with the Romulan fleet does he get sent over you know does Starfleet arrest him Um, what happens to him because they kind of forget to tell us where he ended up, which I suppose leaves open the possibility he might come back in one way or another. But and there's no recon- certainly no reconciliation with Soji. You, you know, there's no there's no wrapping up of that storyline.
1: She's kind of yeah, he's the ex that is well out of her life by that mm. point. You know, I did hear that there might have been a scene written or a plan at least to explain that Narik was handed over to Starfleet, but I think they they either didn't film it or they deleted it. I think because and it presumably it would have happened around the time that you know Riker shows up with all the the fleet and stuff. Maybe they just thought it was a bit, you know, at that at that point where you're supposed to be invested in Picard's possible death, just cutting to Narek, <laughs> board, you know boarding the shuttle or whatever is just a bit anticlimactic. But I think yeah, he could well he could well appear again, and and they do something about him having to come to terms with what he did to. Soji, that that could be an interesting storyline, really. In that, you know, in season two, if they actually play a beat of her actually struggling to you know, connect with people, or particularly men, because of what how he tricked her, that would be that would be interesting. That would be very interesting to see play out, actually. But it depends whether they're going to go down that road. But I, I think I think the, the the whole idea of of like you say, these Blade Runner connections and the and the ideas around. I was very, int- I thought very interesting what you said about the fact that they are often females. I think there is definitely something to that. You know, when you look at again to use Westworld as another comparison because it plays in these similar beats. The two main characters in Westworld are both women, and they both are reacting to this re- realization that they've been a- abused, like by. People who come to this park, who come there and use them for sex as part of the game that they're playing, or kill them brutally, or you know, all the all these terrible things, and they 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 become self aware of this these this horror that these humans are using are considering is just part of a game, you know, a live action theme park. But they are they consider themselves sentient beings who have got all these traumatic memories and how they react to that is in, is going down different paths. So it, it, maybe this it's something about how. It's maybe more harrowing to see this kind of thing happen to a woman than it would be to a man, and you wouldn't be able to necessarily play the same beat. You know, hypothetically, had it been two male androids who didn't know they were androids, as opposed to female characters, and Nerissa was playing the Narek role, would it would it have been the same kind of story? You know, would it would it have been seen in the same way? I mean, that's very that's an interesting thing to consider, actually. You know, would it would it have would it have changed the complexion of this entire idea? And who would have written it that
0: way? Because you see, I sort of wonder whether there's an element of almost unconsciously—is it a male writer's perspective that thinks of a woman as an impossible box that has to be solved and that is mysterious and that kind of is somehow unknowable and, and doesn't even know itself? Do you know what I mean? Is there something about our, our kind of ideas of masculinity that don't really? allow scope for that in the same way not to say it's not possible but that that we sort of push towards the woman being in that situation and it almost calls to mind something like freud's hysterics you, you know freud's kind of interest in in the mysteries of of women's unconscious in particular and hysteria and kind of all these sorts of things and the um the test that narak puts soji through that ritual it has the element of a kind of psychoanalytic, therapeutic environment in a way. Um, but it also links it, interestingly, again, going back to Blade Runner, to this test that Deckard performs, the voight kampf test, which is basically an empathy test, which they use on the androids to find out whether they're, you know, whether they're hu- to use it on the suspected androids to find out whether they're human or not. And so when Narek asks Soji, how does it make you feel when your father doesn't respond? That's... Almost, I mean, A, it sounds like a counsellor, it sounds like counsellor speak, you know, that's exactly what you'd expect a counsellor to ask their, you know, patient, essentially. But it's also very much in line with these kind of probing emotive questions that you get um, in the Voight-Kampff test, which are all about, interestingly, in Blade Runner, both the film and the book that it's based on, uh, the world. And this, I think, in some ways is made much clearer in the book. In the film, it, it maybe is slightly slightly ambiguous what, what, what it's all about. But a lot of these questions are about the treatment of animals, which again, you know, you could say is an interesting, if you're interested in, you know, animal rights and, and the objectification of animals and, tre- you know, whether you treat animals or robots or whatever it is as essentially different kinds of people or essentially different kinds of objects. Um, but in the world that those stories take place in, many, many, most, in fact, animals have become extinct or died out or incredibly rare. And therefore they're kind of prized and they're, uh, you know, people presumably don't eat them they don't you know they any kind of use of animals basically is seen as morally appalling really and so the Blade Runners that are testing that you know the suspected androids because the androids don't have empathy for animals whereas the humans do have empathy for animals supposedly so there's this test um, that they perform where they ask all these questions like you know you find a turtle that's flipped on its back and it's dying in the sun do you help the turtle out or whatever but interestingly what they're doing is that the um and this is another big link to the Picard series a lot of people were complaining as this series went on. When we got to, for example, the, the scene with Echeb that annoyed everyone, it was just one example, and then it came up again in the finale of uh, these eyes being ripped out and so on. And various people were saying, you know, what is wrong with the writers of this show? Why are they so obsessed with eyes? What's all this hideous eye imagery doing in my Star Trek show? Uh, there's something really sick and, and weird and twisted about it. Well, that again comes directly from Blade Runner because Blade Runner is totally the, the eye is the kind of key. Motif almost of that film. The voight test works by focusing in on the eye and studying the eye in great detail. There are all these scenes, for example, there's a scene where the replicants go and find the man who created their eyes. And one of them is like pulling these eyes out of this sort of goo and playing around with them and so on. Tyrell, the guy who's the kind of uh, creator of all the... Replicants, um, that they go back to effectively, well, they they initially want to find out if they can live for longer because their deal is that their life is limited to. Uh, four years, which again ties into this idea of a brief existence. You know, we see this in the end with data saying that the butterfly that lives forever isn't a butterfly and this kind of evanescence and this sort of temporal, temporary aspect of life. The replicants have this very short lifespan and they want to live longer. So they go back to see the creator. He says it's not possible and he's killed again by gouging him through the eyes. So this kind of, um, and, then, and then famously, I mean, in Picard, we have Spot 2. In Blade Runner, we have, because of this whole thing about animals, we have this owl, which, again, is one of the kind of iconic images of the film. And this owl with these kind of glassy, almost sort of dead eyes, the owl turns out to be um, not a real owl, but a a synthetic owl. So, again, the film is kind of constantly fixated on eyes one way or another. I suppose this idea of the eyes as the window to the soul. Um, So I think anyone who's sort of complaining, Michael Chabon and the writers of Picard have got this sort of unhealthy eye fetish should recognise that it's not it's not coming out of nowhere. It's, this isn't the kind of random thing. This is, you know, precisely because they're lifting so much of, and not just the story in terms of Soji, but also the styling. I mean, I talked last time about the Dixon Hill element, that kind of noirish stuff. But again, the kind of techno-noir stuff that we sort of get a glimpse of with Daj in that first episode, again, very much kind of calls to mind um, Blade Runner, which is basically a sort of sci-fi noir film. So again, I would say, if, you know, Of anything that we might talk about in these two episodes, this is the one that really is the key influence on this you know running through this entire season from beginning to end
1: yeah and, and you know I mean it'll be one of those things I think that some people pick up on and others don't if you've seen Blade Runner or not but it's definitely worth I'd say going back you made me want to go and if anything this will make me go and watch Blade Runner again actually you're going to watch it a fourth time yeah. as if uh, <laughs> <Yeah. Just, laughs> you can make it through yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. yeah it gives me another reason to do it so I would encourage anyone one to day check that out. yeah 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 I'll get there
0: <laughs> watch I mean definitely watch the director's cut or the final cut or whatever it is don't worry have the, seen the original that cut is the one with the slightly ropey voiceover yeah. from Harrison Ford, which he didn't want to do. You can tell he's phoning it in. It kind of um, it, 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 it's not as good. I mean, it's still a beautiful film, but it um, definitely the director's cut and the kind of uh, the later cuts improve on it and make it a more interesting film. It is a weird one. I mean, I love that film. Despite that, I have fallen asleep watching that film. I mean, mainly because I've like put it on at 10 o'clock at night, you know, with a beer or two or whatever. But, um, it is, it, it, it has a weirdly sort of languid pace. And yet the plot is actually, in other ways, kind of quite fast. You, you do sort of have to keep up with the plot, but at the same time, give in to the mood, which is, it, it, there is something strangely hypnotic about it. But, um, Definitely, I would say, well worth watching if you haven't seen it in its own right and definitely interesting as a kind of um, complement to season one of Picard. So before we move on, Tony, any other mysteries uh, in the impossible box that you want to draw out before
1: we move on from that episode? (laughs) Well, one that is slightly connected to Soji, actually, which was there was a a moment where you see a lunchbox in her room that was a a memento from her childhood. Which uh, well, it was a false memory implanted ultimately, but it was uh, featuring a character called Flutter, and this was a callback, another callback to Voyager. You know, there've been a few in this episode. There was also the uh, callback to Prime Factors, wasn't there, with the Sicarians and their super warpy technology that they use on the board cube. But the the adventures of Flutter was were a series of programmes that appeared in the episode Once Upon a Time in, uh, I think, the sixth season of Voyager, which was something that um, Naomi Wildman enjoyed, the the, the young girl on Voyager, uh, who we saw regularly. And her mother used them, Samantha Wildman, who was one of the uh, crewmen as well, who'd pop up from time to time. So, And that was a few decades before. So Flutter is... What interests me about this is that, I mean, it's a fairly... You know, blinking your mystic callback to Voyager, but I think what's interesting in referencing Flutter is that it sort of suggests the idea that popular culture is still alive and well in the twenty fourth century and that because it because that's almost that's something that you don't always get in Star Trek necessarily in that and it's I suppose it's difficult to pull off in that all of the characters throughout Star Trek always have interests that either go back to the twentieth century. Or further, you know, <laughs> beyond their, their, their cultural reference points and their, and their pop culture things are based on things we understand. You know, you never get them, you very rarely, you'll get the odd mention of like a 22nd century opera singer or whatever, but it's never really, you never really get the sense that they are venerated in like the Beatles are, you know, in the future or whatever. So it, it, it's hard for them, I suppose, to do that without creating a whole sort of backstory for a fictional future. Uh, you know movie or TV show or character or whatever, but flutter's a good example of how they do that, and they work that into a story, and that you have young children consistently entertained by this by this sort of i th- I think the idea of it was that it was sort of like a detective sort of character character who would help kids understand deductive reasoning in like a magical sort of land the forest of forever it was called and flutter you'd have flutter stories called flutter and the tree monster flutter and the perfect day flutter uh, meets the invincible invertebrates so there's lots of nice fun little stories that you could imagine being analogous to cartoons in our modern day or certain you know popular books you know that kids like harry potter that kids read you know and 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 digest and enjoy so I just I just like that even though it was it was probably something that Kirsten Beyer pulled back <laughs> you know um, from the Voyager days and just threw in there but I, I, I it intrigues me the idea that there is 24th century pop culture and that there are potentially these kind of characters in the way that we venerate Star Trek characters and the, this world in that <laughs> future as well it
0: fascinates me as well as a parent of a small child, because it kind yeah. of makes me wonder, <laughs> is Flotter in Voyager a new thing? Has Flotter been around for hundreds of years? I mean, you know, is Flotter the equivalent of like Enid Blyton or is Flotter the equivalent of the Teletubbies? Do you know what I mean? What And, and I suppose Soji, okay, it's whatever, you know, we're several decades on from that iteration of Star Trek, but I suppose if Soji's, what, in her early 20s, she's i don't know how old naomi wildman would be probably a similar-ish age right so you, you know maybe they would have grown up with the same i don't know though naomi aged at a weird rate didn't she so who, who knows but i mean is is having a flutter uh lunchbox or pencil case or whatever it is kind of nostalgic in the way that if i had a rainbow lunchbox yeah. or something it would be for me or is flutter what raffi's Grandson or granddaughter is going to be growing up with as well.
1: Well, I mean, I think the the suggestion in uh, in Voyager was that Samantha Wildman had, had enjoyed them when she was a child. So you're talking about that you're right, f- yes. So Flutter has been around for. So when's Voyager take place? That's the early 2370s. So Flutter has potentially been around for you know 20, 30 years before then so it it might have been something that that cropped up in the mid 24th century and is still popular 50 years on so in that sense that does make it analogous to maybe something like my little pony which has been around for decades you know in in our world or i was going to say is flotter the sooty of the 24th century maybe yeah
0: (laughs) comes back in a new form but for every generation yeah yeah Yeah. could be could be well it's an interesting point and i mean it is interesting we've seen you, you know we've always seen kids in Star Trek, I suppose, but I think we've seen more toys recently. I mean, we we saw in the, the Short Trek cartoon with the young Michael Burnham, she had a tardigrade toy, which I thought was a bit of a uh, stretch. It seems a bit yeah. unlikely that, you, you know, she happens to have had a tardigrade yeah. toy as a child when she's going to encounter one that's so significant later on. But... Um, kind of interesting that we get to see these these kids toys and also Soji has a glommer I think someone else pointed out someone else you've been scouring the background of those scenes and the glommer that she has is the exact same glommer toy that they've been selling you know based off the animated series which I bought one oh, of for okay. my son back at Destination Star Trek 2018 uh, and he still plays with you, it comes with a couple of baby tribbles that um, you can stick inside its stomach and, and close up <laughs> So you know, <laughs> not only is is Flotta surviving, but you know CBS marketing circa you know whenever they started making those toys, mm. uh, it's also thriving well into the twenty fourth century.
1: Clearly. Well, I've uh, I've also got a Tribble. I I uh, I got one in twenty. 20- He's still mm. going. Twenty sixteen, Destination Star Trek. I bought a Tribble. <laughs> I named him Marvin. And every now and then, I just uh, <laughs> I just go I go hi Marvin and I tap him and he goes. <laughs> he's still there. Uh, very you can nice. you see him yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, oh. <laughs> a, everyone needs a triple, in my opinion, but there you go.
0: They do, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, moving from nostalgia onto something so slightly different, I suppose. I mean, th- well, the episode Nepenthe is very much an episode uh, about nostalgia, one way or another. But the word Nepenthe, I thought was kind of interesting. I had to go and look this one up. But it's an- another classical reference, quite a lot of classical references in this season of Picard, as well as... You know, typically with Star Trek, we're used to a lot of Shakespearean references uh, in particular, maybe not so much from kind of the classical world. It feels like there's a bit more of a a feed into things here. Certainly, when we get to the end of the season, we're going to, you know, talk about those final episodes, which again have a kind of classical ring to them in the title and also in the styling to some extent. Um, But Nepenthe being a drug of forgetfulness. So there's obviously a kind of strong association here being made with the idea that the Troy Rikers, they've moved to this planet to heal, to forget, to kind of move past their suffering uh, one way or another. Now, interestingly, the planet that Echeb was killed on is called Vergason. And Vergason apparently is also, uh, is the German in this instance, for to forget. So weirdly, we've got these two quite strikingly, striking named planets that are named, they're not, you know, Cestus Three, or, or you know, whatever it is, Omicron Theta or, you know, they're not these kind of sci-fi sounding names. They're these planets that are named after, you know, after a cultural legacy one way or another. One of them referencing something in, in classical antiquity, one of them referencing German. Uh, and the Vegason is in the Hypatia system. So, again, there's a kind of classical reference there, Hypatia being uh, an ancient Greek mathematician and scientist, uh, who was murdered by a Christian mob? So I don't know if there's. I'm not. You know, this is where we really do need Chrissy from the uh, line to, <laughs> to, to to fill us in. I think this is not my territory at all. But it, I think it's interesting that the show keeps kind of bringing up these bringing up these associations, even if it's just in the naming of a planet or something. Um, you know, and again, sort of grounding it in our own history and our own culture and our own world to some extent. Although I think a lot of people, when at the end of the Impossible Box, when Picard says send us to Nepenthe and it was all in, in this kind of rather uh, a lot of drama and noise and stuff going on a lot of people thought they were ending up in the you know Klingon gulag uh, and a Nepenthe, it's a good job yeah. that Hugh heard him correctly you know and sent him to the right planet because otherwise that could have been a whole yeah. different episode that would have been a fascinating
1: alternate
0: you know exactly you kind yeah. of dial the wrong number on the Sicarian trans <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is machine anything
1: else that you wanted to talk about from the Um well I'm, I'm I suppose I'm interested really in um, particularly well, I suppose there's a couple of things firstly Kestra Troy Riker and her myth, um, her world the world building she does in the language she creates and the stories that she builds that, that are based on her uh, deceased brother's ideas and that he created his own kind of very Tolkien-esque language. This, this this very much felt like a play on on Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and that kind of. And I suppose to some extent, the way that the Mark Ochran, you know, built up the Klingon language in the Star Trek universe, you know, the idea that there are, and again, I suppose it's a bit similar to the reference to Flutter, that the idea that you have characters in this future who are, you know, building mythical worlds and are escaping into a form of. You know their own kind of entertainment, you know, and and like at one point, Kestra uh, talks in another language, and and Deanna says that it's Harpanthe, spoken by the mind witches of the Southern Ice, which sounds like something out of Game of Thrones, you know, and <laughs> George R R. Martin, but it's great. I, I think that's a nice add. I mean, it adds something to Kestra as a character, and she's a great character anyway. She's really well characterized in that one episode, but it it adds a level of sadness in that it's sort of been constructed off the back of. The person they've lost, you know, their brother and their son, but also it just adds a nice dimension to the character of, of Kestra, I think, and gives her a, a, a real, a, a real level of individuality that some characters might be missing, as well as as like we say, touching on these ideas of these, you know, fa- very large scale ideas of world building that that you've seen in literature in the past. Absolutely. I mean, interesting, yeah. You should pick up
0: the fantasy element. I, I think that is definitely there. And you're right. I mean, Tolkien, we've got already with the kind of character of Elnor. Um, So it's almost a parallel there. I sort of saw her more as this kind of, you, you know, it's almost like a sort of Red Indian character. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of uh, sort of cowboys and Indians. I, I, I don't know. There's something about that. Or even like, I don't know, Swallows and Amazons or something like that. But with these stories that are being invented it made me think as well of the um didn't the bronte sisters uh as children invent dozens of languages and have these uh, kind of fantasy worlds I think they have that done, they yeah. inhabited it sort of made me think of that and i wonder if that was a deliberate parallel or not one of the things that struck me about it that's interesting as well is that we see a hu well, I was going to say a human, a half human character, but a, a sort of ostensibly a human character hunting, which is something that in Star Trek, certainly in Next Gen, I have a feeling even Riker in Next Gen at one point makes some comment about, oh, we don't kill animals for food anymore, uh, and yet here they are killing those. And I didn't notice it when they talk about the bunny corn and this poisonous sax, I imagined the bunny corn as some kind of hideous reptile, uh, and that therefore I sort of didn't mind Kestrel. I mean, not that I, I, you know, I. I i'm a vegan i don't you know believe in killing any animals but you know i, I sort of reconciled it as it was some uh dangerous beast that was you, you know a threat to them and, and so on and, and she was killing it then i discover from people who've been you, you know freeze-framing the episode the bunny corn is a cute little bunny it's a bunny rabbit that she's shot which is actually in shot uh in the episode and is a bunny rabbit with a unicorn's horn, hence a bunny corn, (laughs) uh, in a nod to the original series episode, The Enemy Within, where they have that dog, the dog with the unicorn. Right, okay. So anyway, I sort of thought that was a kind of interesting step for Star Trek, that not only have Riker and Troy gone to this world where they're growing their own vegetables and so on, which is kind of a theme we've had in Star Trek before about, you know, oh, it's so much better to grow your own stuff and not have all this replicated stuff and so on, but that they're actually encouraging their children to participate in hunting rather than I don't know getting their organic vegetables or whatever it is they have sort of regressed to a sort of you know this the the, the wild man of the woods or whatever you know Riker's out there okay it's a pizza oven but you, you, you know he's sort of they're definitely they're they're deliberately living a very pre-24th century lifestyle if you know what I mean they're 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 kind of shifted into this very old-fashioned gear, I suppose, one way or I th- another.
1: I think that fits, though, particularly with with Will, because he, he, you know, you get him, you get when you first see him, he's jazz playing, you know, and you get that he was always interested in, in – he, he was somebody who had a, a bit a, – in, in a way, this is why, like, Tom Paris is similar to Riker in that they both have 20th century – affectations they're interested in they both have that they both understand a lot of those cultural reference points and will you know the fact he's cooking pizza and the, you know he's listening to jazz he was always a character who, who had a lot of you know fondness for that kind of era and for before I mean you know the, the fact that they name their son Thaddeus is after the the Riker ancestor that we, we we find out about in Death Wish you know old iron boots from like the Civil War so again that that's that's a 19th century particularly American connection in terms of the Riker history and and those those kind of cultural reference points that you know we were talking in the last episode about how it doesn't seem like lots of people in the future know about Dunkirk. Kirk well they're certainly not going to know about old iron boots you know <laughs> unless they're like Riker you know and that's so I, I like I like the fact that you, I think that's a really good comparison there to draw in terms of the red Indian stuff I, I think I think there's that they, he's they, become they... a sort of settler, hasn't he? I suppose yeah. it's true. He's a bit of this... In the, on the Christine, frontier. Mm. Uh, exactly, on the
0: frontier of this kind of beautiful, unspoilt world. And, you know, okay, great, he's not destroying it all. They're <laughs> uh, kind of yeah. living... We get the sense they're living more in harmony with that world. But, yeah, I suppose there is that sense that they're these... They've come from civilization
1: and they've moved to the wilderness, almost. They're, they are perhaps the one example of where the... Supposed 24th century utopia that we hoped these characters would get to does exist. And that they've, they've almost reached that, but by doing it, they've reached, they've gone backwards in a way. Like you say, they've set, they've become like futuristic settlers. Yes, they have a house that has like shields, you know, shields up from the Kazinti or whatever, and they can do all those little things, but it does feel like a very, like a homestead on the frontier, you know, out in the wilderness. And that, and that is, but that in a way, in, in itself, is that Star Trek suggesting that, you know, to go forward, you have to go back. You know, and you almost have to sort of go regress to this kind of simpler life in order to reach that peace. Because it does feel like, you know, and the one thing all through Nepenthe, I was desperately hoping they didn't do, and they didn't do it, which is one of the reasons it's my favourite episode of the season, is that I didn't want suddenly a load of Romulans to beam down and start shooting. And, you know, I, I I didn't want that because I don't want that little corner disrupted. I want them to be happy in that space. You know, so I was over it's the moon. disrupted a pun, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> It, it should have been. I should have got that. <laughs> but I didn't want... Yeah. yeah. I didn't want that. No,
0: but you're right. We spoil. didn't want it spoiled for no, them. And it's didn't. interesting. It's true. It is a form of utopia. And then obviously when we get to the finale, we're going to see a different kind of utopia. And it raises questions about sort of what that kind of utopia might be. And it also... I mean, if you go all the way back to the cage, you know, think of Pike's fantasies in the cage. You know, it was not a million miles away, sitting on a picnic blanket with his girlfriend and a horse. You, you know, it's kind of... It is almost, that seems to be the fantasy. That's the world that all these people who live in this incredible, wonderful uh, future that, you know, we could only dream of. That's what they want, really. You're right. They want to go back to this kind of, um, on one level, maybe they do want to go back to this sort of cowboy world somehow. Wagon train in space. <laughs> wagon, to- wagon train to the stars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, but they, they have found a kind of peace in this uh, very... Old fashioned, uh, world, uh, which is interesting. And, th- and they're growing their own vegetables. And, and, you know, we have that conversation, uh, between Troy and Soji about, um, the tomatoes and how, you know, and she says it's better to be real basically and this kind of, question of, you know, is soji real or not? And we get that picked up with Picard when he wakes up uh, in his new synth body in the finale. He says, am I real? And she says, of course you are. So she's sort of come on that journey in a sense to recognise that real can mean different things to different people. But Star Trek is always telling us, you know, real alcohol is better than synthol, real vegetables. <laughs> I mean, look at Cisco's dad is always going on about how, you know, real ingredients are better than, it's kind of like organic versus, you know, factory farmed in our context almost isn't it and they absolutely are living in this environment
1: I would have loved to have gone to Joseph Sisko's restaurant it looked amazing Mm -hmm. like you could almost smell it when it was (laughs) on the screen another uh, little theme that I suppose I don't know if it's deliberate
0: but it it might be is that one of the languages that we hear that Thad invented was a language for butterflies Um, and there's this a discussion where Troy says she could never master it, but, you know, it's all about the flapping of their wings and so on. And obviously the butterfly comes to play this sort of symbolic role towards the end, because first of all, we've got the butterfly as this sort of emblem of freedom for Picard in the finale, him saying, you know, I wish I could fly away like you, basically. And then for Data, the butterfly represents mortality uh, because it has this very brief lifespan. So I just thought it's an interesting kind of seeding there of this idea of this sort of butterfly motif, motif that's going to run you know, through the season. That's true. That's yeah. I I'm picked up on that, but yeah, that's that's a good observation. My final point for that episode is the admonition is basically a rerun of Terminator Two: Judgment Day <laughs> uh, when we see that for the first time. <laughs> you know, with all yeah. Just- you know things exploding and kind of
1: like this, this vision of of you know horror and chaos and apocalypse basically um, are you saying that Agnes Jurati is Sarah Connor is that what you're getting at maybe that's where she's going you know, that would be an
0: interesting I mean you know Sarah Connor wasn't always Sarah Connor if you know what I mean no. I mean oh, it took yeah. her a while yeah. to get to that point didn't it who knows maybe yeah. by season two or three Agnes is going to be you know maybe she's going to be ripped and she's yeah. going to be <laughs> gun-toting <laughs> maniac be. I don't know <laughs> that would be a surprise yeah. but you know I, I, I like the old Agnes but I mean it's interesting maybe you, you know it it'd kind of be interesting to see where they do go with her character because she can't be out of her depth forever if you know what I mean uh, which is sort of how she's been played all this season Okay, well, moving on to broken pieces. Actually, just carrying on with the theme of the admonition. One thing I thought was interesting about this was that Girardi talks about the admonition as a warning about hubris, and it struck me again. You know, we've been talking about these classical references. We've had hubris quite uh, memorably pointed up in the script for Star Trek Picard in episode two, with the you know famous line from Admiral Clancy. Now we have it coming up in a different context, and I think it's interesting that they should raise this question of hubris. The idea of hubris was originally, I mean, we might think of it in terms of just kind of getting too big for your boots or kind of overreaching or or whatever. Originally, I think it carried in that sort of classical context, a, a sort of charge almost of blasphemy. And I suppose, you know, you could say that this idea of creating synthetic beings, is almost, from a religious perspective, you might say is blasphemous. This idea that, you, you know, God creates, uh, life and that for humans to try to create life is sort of presumptuous somehow. But the other thing that struck me about this, the fact that we have this season of Picard, which keeps referencing hubris is that hubris is kind of traditionally paired with nemesis. Nemesis is the goddess that punishes those who are guilty of hubris. So weirdly, where in classically you go from hubris to nemesis, it kind of feels, it feels like, I mean, talking about puns, it feels like a pun on Michael Shaban's part, almost that they've gone from nemesis to hubris, and that's what we get with the card.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, and that, that, but I think it's the kind of deeper thinking that I think he's definitely behind this season and this series. Even if it doesn't always come out in the scripts, even if sometimes things have to be, you know, I really got the sense throughout this entire season that so much was cut and so much was trimmed to you know get pare it down and i think michael chabon has talked about this about how you know they they killed so many of their darlings so to speak and that they they really pared it down to the bone in terms of what they wanted to get out there and i i, I dare i say i think they pared down a bit too much sometimes you know some of these episodes clocked in at like 45 minutes and if, and I actually wouldn't have minded an hour every, every week because I think you could have had the space to actually include a few more scenes that got into the depth that got into some of this stuff a bit more. And it's one of the reasons I think broken pieces on a character level is one of the more successful because I think, you know, Rios is my favorite character of this new ensemble anyway, but I think the way they approach exploring him in this in this episode and actually crafting i know there's other stuff going on and it's a very sort of exposition heavy episode basically laying out the entire mythology of the season but ultimately it it, to do that you have to go through this period this point of understanding rios's backstory and getting to a little bit more into his character and i think it was good the way they framed those revelations around rios was was a successful you know, structure. And I, th- I think it, it sometimes I would have liked to have seen that level of depth going into some of these ideas that you've just like, like the one you've just mentioned, a little bit more in some of these episodes. Yeah, I really enjoyed all the stuff with Rios. I mean,
0: I loved him as a character anyway. And I think it works well, the revelations that we get in this episode. Um, and also, quite, you know, quite dark for Star Trek to have a storyline that features suicide and this kind of, I mean, when he said in the earlier episode, he saw his captain's brain splattered across the ship or whatever. I was sort of imagining something like Michael Burnham goes through with her captain, you, you know, being kind of brutally murdered in front of her. I wasn't, it didn't cross my mind. Although in some ways with retrospect, you sort of think the way he describes it, you might think, that he's talking about a suicide, but it just seems so unlikely in Star Trek that that be something that feels again like something that might belong in Battlestar Galactica, not in the Star Trek universe somehow, because it's so antithetical to that whole kind of Federation mindset and so on. But it's interesting, of course, we've had with Rios from early on this kind of this philosophy book he was reading about the what is it, the tragic sense of life, I was because the pointlessness of life, whatever yeah. it is. We saw <laughs> that in an earlier episode. Yeah. This again, I, I have to say, I'm relying on Wikipedia. This is a book written by a guy called Unamuno, who uh, this is what Wikipedia has. Life was tragic, according to Unamuno, because of the knowledge that we are to die. He explains much of human activity as an attempt to survive in some form after our death. So, again, there's that theme of death and resurrection and kind of, you you know, the idea of trying to conquer death or kind of live beyond death or whatever. And the sort of existential Crisis of the fact that we're unable to. Now, in broken pieces, we see a lot more philosophy books. We see some Camus books. We see various other philosophers. I am going to have to leave it to Metatrex to do an episode on Rios's bookshelf. I and mean, when we did our episode on Khan's bookshelf in The Wrath of Khan, uh, which I was a bit more familiar with. But interesting, I suppose, that the philosophy I don't know that we we see this guy who he spends his his spare time reading heavy philosophy books in a way that so far in Star Trek we've seen Vulcans doing maybe and that's probably just about it. The last time we saw a philosophy book, I think, was Captain Archer being given one by T'Pol and you, you know pretty much giving one look at it and saying, "There's no way I'm going to bother reading that." <laughs> Rios is a captain who is you know he's into these sort of deep questions and he's into them in quite a kind of gritty. Uh, Serious way, which in some ways you could say, I mean, Picard was into the deep questions, but from a slightly more uh, calm and measured and um, less tortured perspective.
1: Well, it's interesting that you mention Metatrex because they, they've they done an episode on the philosophical side of this season. And one of the things that uh, Zachary mentions on there is about how they ma- they kind of, in his opinion, they didn't quite grasp existentialism. And that they kind of came at it from the angle of that it was a, a terror, like a, 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 an angle that is often approached. In that, when you think of existentialism these days, it, it's got a, and he, I think Zachary's right about this, it's got a very sort of maudlin. Somber, moody teenager, sort yeah, of. kind of tag, yeah. and, the, and, and and
0: I'm probably guilty of exactly the same thing in what I've just said. So, <laughs> but
1: no, but I, I think I think it's I think it's kind of in in popular culture and in culture in general, it's kind of got that reputation in this day and age. Heavily, I think, down to what you've seen in cinema and in film, TV, and all this kind of thing, and, and literature, in that it's kind of got this tag now as being very much about you know uh, this nihilistic view of of existence, and you know Zachary's. You know, approach was that it's not that's not what existentialism is. It's much more about understanding the self in order to live a better life. And he feels like the concept maybe been a little bit. And I, I, I have no, I have no massive understanding of this topic, so I defer to him. You know, who clearly does understand it for more detail on that. Um, but it's interesting that in this season, Rios is definitely they definitely approach existentialism in trying to craft Rios as being this very tortured individual and that he's reading all of these books, you know, like you mentioned, he's reading Kierkegaard, he's reading Camus, He's reading books like the, the concept of dread, which is all about anxiety and, you know, anxiety is fear and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, it's interesting, but it does feel a little bit obvious and on the nose, you know, like with, with, with with Picard and he's, he's interesting philosophy. You really did get the sense that he was just trying to understand ideas about existence to make himself more of an enriched human being whereas Rios he seems to be reading these books to try and figure out the answer to why his captain blew his head off you know and I think it's it's, but it, it is a nice it is a nice parallel in this idea that Rios In another world, or in another way, could have become a Picard himself, I think, in that he's, you know, he's very, he's very fond of Picard. He clearly looks up to him. He's clearly a bit of a fanboy, you know, throughout this, this season in a way, even though he tries to play that down. Picard knows, and Picard can see that he's actually, potentially would have been a great Starfleet captain in a different life. So it's, it's, it's interesting that maybe Rios is where, you know, like, if Picard, after Tapestry, had gone down a dark road, you know, when he was full of hubris, as we say back in the day, if he'd become more of a Shinzoni kind of character, you know, would he would he have ended up more like Rios? Would he have ended up this tortured, angst, angsty individual who was just reading Camus and Kierkegaard, you know, instead of becoming the Picard we know? And so I, I like I like the duality of their relationship. I also like the way Rios refers to Picard as quixotic, at one point, which, you know, sort of have, we have a bit of a nod to the whole Don Quixote kind of idea, you know, of this. In- and, and, and Picard sort of says, I think he says something like, you know, I, I, let's stick to Quixotic. I'm, I'm happy with that. You know, we can go with that. Well, and but he brings it up again to um, Clancy, doesn't he?
0: Yeah. Uh, later on when he has that, that call with her and he says, you know, the windmills are real. Basically, you should
1: have listened to me. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. he does. That's so, true, yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, it, it's a good point. But I just like that sense that they are if not exactly two sides of the same coin that there is a certain philosophical difference between how these two are played and that in some senses they could be a similar kind of character but I, I would say to anyone, go and listen to that Metatrex, because it, it does add some interesting ideas to this idea of Rios and what he's reading. I should say, obviously, the windmills are real in Don Quixote.
0: I mean, the monsters or whatever it is, whatever the monster, I can't remember. What is yeah, it he no, thinks they yeah. are giants? The giants are real. Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah, Because saying the windmills are real is, you know, that's my lockdown brain and oh. or his iremodic syndrome I know what you mean. <laughs> coming yeah. through, but probably <laughs> the former. But yeah. yeah, but interesting that Don Quixote gets these kind of um, very glancing uh, references, uh, and, and I, which I suppose makes a lot of sense for Picard as a character. I mean, we talked last time about the parallels between Picard on the vineyard and Sherlock Holmes in retirement, keeping bees and so on. But again, you know, Don Quixote is a sort of obvious character for this um, guy who wants to go back out, you, you know, go out questing essentially at an advanced age and possibly having lost at least some of his marbles, you know. Um, and I don't feel the show ever quite... Uh, they don't lay it on very thick. It's not like... I mean, in First Contact, Picard is Captain Ahab. Okay, maybe here Picard is Don Quixote, but they certainly don't lay it on with mm. the same... With a trowel. L- with a trowel, exactly, yeah. in, in this instance. But it's an interesting <laughs> parallel to think about again. Yeah, yeah. No, it is,
1: yeah. Um, anything else for you from Broken Pieces that jumps out? Um, I, I suppose that there is a uh, another, another sort of shade to, to Rios. He's listening to Billie Holiday and a song... Mm-hmm. Uh, called Solitude. On his Walkman. Yeah, <laughs> On his Walkman. I love that line. Actually, conf-
0: the first time I watched it, I was just slightly baffled. But then once I understood the joke, I, I thought it was brilliant.
1: Yeah, and that's again. I suppose that's a, another example of how the show is tapping into cultural reference points we understand. At one point, as well, he orders a cup of peppermint ice cream and a plate of French fries for Soji. You know, so he, 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 you know, and these these are you know you I, I can't but back in back in the. Um, in the next generation era, you did have that happen at times, but it felt like it would often be more either alien beverages or sort of human beverages of the, of the era a little bit more, or if it was deliberately old fashioned, it would be something like root beer, you know, or I don't know, something particular. I just feel like there's, there's quite a lot of particular reference points to um, an earlier, an earlier time. I mean, things like the, the, the Spanish lullaby, that he sings as well, Arroz con, le- a- con leche, I can't exactly how you say it, but it, 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 it feels like with Rios, he is a bit of a lightning rod, In a, maybe in a similar sense to how Riker was in, in TNG, for these older reference points, maybe because he's, but then I was going to say, maybe because he's one of those characters who feels more organically like somebody who would be living in the past, but then I think you could say the same about Rafi, you know, and So they are all characters who've been devised to be far more contemporary to 21st century existence than the next generation characters were. You know, it's it's in the DNA of Picard that these are people that could exist today. They just happen to be existing in 2399. So I don't know. Yeah, well, I suppose Star Trek has always had this interest
0: in... In popular culture, one way or another, I mean, yeah, you've got Riker's jazz, you've got Tom Paris on Voyager, I suppose, you know, certainly bringing it up. I think What strikes me about Rios is Rios is pretty cool. I mean, Riker was pretty cool, I suppose, in some ways. Tom Paris on Voyager, it was cheesy. Do you know what I mean? The, yeah. cu- the pop culture that he was resurrecting, it was naff, it was a bit ropey. Uh, it, it was ironic, I suppose, the thing, and maybe this was the '90s. It was the kind of ironic '90s. Rios, now, okay. So you could say he's a little bit of a caricature of a sort of moody, uh, you know, teenager reading books of French existentialism or whatever, <laughs> and smoking and you know, drinking and you know, who knows what else. But um, but there isn't. There is a definite. He's a definitely a cool character, and partly that's the guy who plays him. Just seems impossibly cool, and also incredibly talented, and you know, all the rest. I, the fact that he's playing Billie Holiday, it sort of, it it gives him credibility somehow. Do you know what I mean? In a way that um, I think certainly someone like Tom Paris with his own interest in, in, you know, previous popular culture lacks somehow. It kind of, you can, and maybe you can sort of imagine that Billie Holiday is something that's going to survive for, you know, 400 years or whatever. We can only hope.
1: Well, I, th- I think it. it I'd, I'd imagine her music would. Yeah. So it, it, it's those kind of. I don't mind Star Trek pulling out those kind because of, I, I, you know, I mean, Mozart and Beethoven are listened to today. So I don't see why someone like Billie Holiday wouldn't be in the future. Definitely, it's it's when you start getting people like I don't know. Girls allowed, you know, or Ricky Martin. <laughs> I was gonna <laughs> <You> say, <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, you mentioned the Beatles earlier. I
0: don't. I suspect we're never going to see a uh, Beatles or hear Beatles music on Star Trek because uh, outside of The Prisoner, that, uh, I think that's kind of prohibitively expensive, right? <laughs> but, yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe they <laughs> tried that once and got burnt. But um, you know, Billy Holiday, absolutely. You know, obviously we've had the Beastie Boys. So who, who knows what else? Yeah. The whole uh, whatever they gamut can get of, of musical culture. Whatever is does there. it cost them? <laughs> I know yeah. one for melodic <laughs> tracks. There really, I think. <laughs> Shall we move on now then and talk about the finale, the two part finale? I think we'll treat that as one episode because I can't even remember what happens in which part. To be perfectly honest. Um, now, one thing that struck me, I think we we'll have come on to talk about the title in a minute, but I did look up also the name of the planet. The name Coppelius, uh apparently is taken from a German short story, The Sandman, uh, which is about an automaton or in some ways refers to an automaton. And I didn't go around to reading it. I'm sorry, but I don't know if you know anything more about this story or whether <laughs> tell us on the Babel conference that we missed a trick uh, in the research here. But um, it may be just a passing reference. But anyway, it is a- another planet that is named for something significant and relevant to the plot rather than just, you know, whatever it is, X, Y, Z, one, two, three, uh, in the kind of sci-fi way. The big thing here, I think, is this idea of Arcadia. And we've got it in the title, the title Et in Arcadia, Ego. Okay, first of all, it refers to the idea of Arcadia, Arcadia being this kind of classical vision of a sort of pastoral utopia, in effect, very much like, as you say, Nepenthe, is in actuality. Arcadia was a a province that was a mountainous province. It became this kind of byword for, I suppose, this simpler life, this kind of lost simpler. There's a sort of a parallel, I think, with the Garden of Eden, the idea of this kind of perfect innocent life that has been lost almost to some extent. Um, And and obviously, with the synths growing up in this sort of new world, this new community, there is almost a sense of that synth Sort of synth feel there is is a kind of Edenic uh, environment somehow where these you know brilliant creators are, are making life out of nothing. So there's kind of um, an element there. Uh, Virgil set his eclogues, if that's how you pronounce that word, in Arcadia, but the the title refers specifically to a painting. This is a painting by Nicholas uh, or Nicolas Poussin, and the title it, it means "Et in Arcadia ego" uh, basically means even. In Arcadia, in paradise, here I am, I exist. And the painting is a picture of a tomb. And so the assumption of most people, the the kind of general gloss on this, is that the person speaking, the title of the painting is death. And it's basically saying, even in paradise, uh, we're all mortal, we're still going to die. So again, there's that kind of theme of mortality, of, you know, for Picard, the kind of impending death and the tomb and so on. For Data, as it turns out at the end of the episode, we've got this kind of theme of death. This this idea of kind of death is going to get us all. Uh, one way or another we're only mortal as Picard um, tells Riker uh, in Star Trek
1: Generations not realizing that he himself is going to prove otherwise (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's fascinating that it's it's a definite very clear reference point that I mean you know people who understand art will will almost certainly immediately pick it up as opposed to people have to go and research it but I think it's Arcadia is definitely a, a term that's that's been used before. I mean, there's an episode of, uh, of the TV show millennium from the nineties called in Arcadia ego, which is playing again on, on a similar uh, reference point, I think. So it's definitely, it definitely has existed before in certain um, TV shows and things like that. But I think I, 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 I do think the whole idea here of, of this being a utopia makes sense in the context of that the entire season of Picard has sort of suggested that utopia doesn't exist at this point. Now that what we thought the, the, like like I said before, the utopia that we thought we were going to get in the 24th century hasn't materialized, but then you, they come across this planet, this Eden in theory, yet it's compromised yet. It's, it's, uh, it's potentially going to be the gateway to some dark, you know, and maybe we'll talk about this a bit later. The serpents. Dark-
0: There's always a serpent in the Garden of Eden, isn't there? And these ones are literally coming out of the sky. Like so, yeah,
1: like a dark Lovecraftian yeah. serpent god that he's potentially going to come out and and uh, and get them. So I think. It's, it's like a tainted utopia. You know, if the Riker Troy's, Troy Rikers are living in, in a proper utopia, a peaceful existence, these guys are living in a fake. And, 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 it's one of those that you, that, that soon it's, it's a corrupted Eden, I think. And that, and that's why I suppose, you know, you, you've got these characters who then become, are, are uh, theoretically supposed to be part of this sort of e- e- Edenic idea, but become, you know, a, a compromise like Sutra. Like, is, he's, he's a great example of that kind of character who at first might appear, appear serene and charming and and seductive. I mean, her very name for me is, is a nod to the Karma Sutra. You know, this idea, you know, this, the famous, for want of a better term, sort of sex manual from, you know, years gone by that is all about. Um, you know love and sexuality and that kind of thing and she she is very seductive but she is ultimately even though it's not really paid off that much she is essentially a bad guy so i i, I like i do like the idea that they they reach a fallen utopia by the end i th- i think that is a good payoff for what we've had before
0: she is almost a, a kind of a sort of lucifer figure or something there, there is yeah she's the kind of yeah. i mean she's law mark two to some extent but she is also you're right she's the kind of um the snake in the garden if you know what i mean and she's the one who's who's going to release these as you say these kind of lovecraftian uh techno snake eel monster things which are a bizarre i don't know about you i found them a slightly bizarre introduction into star trek i mean even just having heard about this these kind of advanced synths and what were we expecting to come from the future they're very similar actually to what came from discovery we had that thing with sort of tentacles and so on i mean where this idea well you know maybe it does come from lovecraft but you know it it feels slightly out of keeping with the star trek universe for me um i don't know what, what what's your take on those those monsters um and whether they sort of fit or not
1: i, I don't know i mean i i, I like i liked it because I, I think it was Peculiar. And I I think it's sort of tapping into, there's been a real resurgence for Lovecraftian fiction in the last few years. And I, 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 it's, it's all over the place, you know, from everything from the fact we're now getting fairly big budget Lovecraft, literal Lovecraft adaptations like The Color Out of Space, which was fairly successful recently and is going to spark a trilogy, you know, up to the fact that you get things like, um, there's a, there's a new film out called Underwater with Kristen Stewart, which actually has a Lovecraft reference in it towards the end, and even just generally in all kind in lots and lots of fictional universes now they are, they seem to be tapping into the idea that Lovecraft was was he's one of my favourite writers and he's he's been an influence on everything over the last hundred years from Stephen King through to a lot of the movies you will have you will have watched you know as 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 fans of this kind of stuff and he he ultimately was his work is he's, he's pretty terrifying it was written in like the, the 20s and 30s and and, and a, a time like that and he was writing about an unknowable cosmic universe and that we were a tiny little speck and we we meant essentially we meant nothing he was a very near even rios would have got on great because he was a very nihilistic kind of writer and he was he was very much all about how humanity cannot look upon Look upon my works, ye mighty and despair, what's that quote? You know, it's that whole idea of looking up at at the cosmos and being so unable to fathom what is out there that you go mad. And and most of the characters in Lovecraft stories lose their minds because they glimpse something that is beyond comprehension. And I suppose that Like that's, Auntie Ramda here then. Yeah. And and I think that I think in some senses the closest that Star Trek came to that before, even though it wasn't presented in this way, was probably the Borg. In that you you were thrown into a, a, an alien species that was completely unlike anything that they'd ever encountered in Star Trek before. You know, it didn't have any comprehensible. You know, it wasn't a race with a with a culture in the sense of it has a planet, it has a uh, a foundational government, it has you can negotiate with them. You know, they were a force, a force to you know just powering through the galaxy. But ultimately, the Borg were not completely unknowable. They were they were a collective of assimilated beings, and you could get your head around the Borg queen and what they were trying to do. Lovecraft and this the, this these synths from wherever are that idea of the old what what Lovecraft would describe as the old gods. These completely on unfa- which is why you don't really ever see it properly. You only see the tentacle snake through because you can't ultimately. I don't think you would ever see all of it because you couldn't. It's, it's just, it's beyond comprehension. It's from some, somewhere in the universe that you, you know, Star Trek will never go <laughs> because the whole point, <laughs> the whole point is that you, you can't look upon it because the characters would not understand it. And I think that's, I think that's why I liked it because it's scary and it's something that is in fitting with maybe this idea that you know, the, the universe of the late 24th century is a bit ragged and a bit more lawless and a bit more unknowable again. And in some in some sense, I quite like that about, about what they've done with Picard. Even if I don't always love some of the choices that have been made, I like the idea that maybe now the neutral zone has collapsed and that the Borg aren't quite the threat that they were, we don't know what's out there. And if you only have to shoot a laser up into the sky and you could have some sort of all destroying hell beasts <laughs> come out of a portal. So I, I, but I'm a big fan of Lovecraft, so maybe that's swaying my opinion. Well,
0: maybe if I was more familiar with Lovecraft's works, then these monsters would appeal to me a little bit more as well. I mean, I don't mind them. I just sort of feel like they don't to me sell this kind of advanced civilization that we've been. There's been built up somehow. They, 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 they feel very different to what they. They're not what I was expecting. I suppose. Let's put it that way. But. Ultimately, I guess we're not going to see much of them, whatever they are. So, you know,
1: if they, if they work for you, then good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. They work for say. everyone because no. they, they, they maybe aren't particularly Star Trek you know, and, but, but in some sense, like I say, I think that's kind of the point. Fair enough. Well, just going back
0: to the idea of Arcadia before we move on. I mean, so we talked a little bit about the idea of, of Arcadia as this kind of Edenic environment. Sutra, obviously, I mean, Sutra, you, you know, we talked about her as the, this kind of uh, serpent figure. She at one point it sort of feels almost like she's running a death cult or something. There's this sort of element of you know who's drinking sutras kool aid uh here and and people you know the fact that they and Picard talks about them as being very inexperienced and kind of giving into fear and kind of um needing to be set a good example and all these kind of things it just sort of feel like there's this idea of the um, th- there's always this sort of thing isn't there about like you know how the crowd behaves in a certain situation we have picard trying to make his big rallying speech at the end of part 1 of this finale and then finding that it doesn't land at all you know he seems to have completely lost the ability to carry the room somehow and sung is the one who sort of says yeah they're not going to buy any of that that's all a load of you-, you know and says to them don't listen to this this is all rubbish essentially so there is this kind of sense this slightly cult-like element of like who's going to make the appeal to reason, who's going to sort of um, get this group to go in the right direction. And ultimately, Picard has to find a different way of doing that. Before we kind of move on from this idea of Arcadia, I just wanted to raise uh, another possibility, which I think is... When this first crossed my mind, I thought this was a bit of a stretch, you know, even more than my Dixon Hill idea in the previous episode. But that is the idea that this episode is not just influenced by the painting Et in Arcadia ego but that it may actually also be influenced by the Tom Stoppard play Arcadia which was originally written under a working title of Et in Arcadia ego and which features a discussion of the painting and a kind of, interestingly a kind of um a double gloss on what that title means uh, because it has one character who sort of mistranslates a lot of the play is sort of about translation and about these kind of classical texts and so on mistranslates it as um, here I am in Arcadia and the the daughter says actually it's more something more like uh, even in Arcadia here am I or something like that anyway so there's this discussion about sort of what does this phrase um, exactly mean now you might think it's a bit of an obscure one that this play by an English dramatist, which is about, uh, for anyone who's not familiar with it, it's it's a brilliant play. It's an absolute. Uh, I would say Stoppard's best play for my money, real theatrical masterpiece. But it's set in this um, English country house in two time periods, and it's kind of I would say it's it's written before that idea of these kind of two time period narratives became. So sort of hackneyed and predictable and boring. But basically in the one time period, uh, it's in the time of Byron. uh, And there's this group of people at this country house including this young girl who is a bit of a prodigy uh, and her tutor and her tutor is an old friend of byrons and byron may or may not be staying with them although we never see we never see him on stage but he is we understand that he is there he is visiting the family at the time sort of on the estate and then in the latter period set in the present day as it was then now you know set in the whatever it is early 90s or something uh, when the play was written there's a Byron scholar kind of investigating and and trying to piece together these different elements of what's happened and work out. Uh, He he becomes convinced that Byron fought a duel. Now, in fact, there was a proposed duel, but it was someone else. And so there's a lot of comedy around the modern characters misunderstanding what's going on in the past. But there's also a kind of tragic element because there's this whole thing going on about what, what Arcadia is and what it represents, because what's going on at the time, in the earlier time period, is that they're ripping up their sort of classical uh landscape architecture and replacing it with this sort of mock gothic uh architecture instead almost like those lovecraftian eels coming through the sky you know they're kind of throwing out the classical trappings they're getting rid of the beautiful you, you know um sort of old fashioned decorations and ornaments in their garden and so on and i should say actually i mean you know even in talking about this classical thing the way those androids are dressed it does feel very kind of like they're, they're, they're living in the classical world somehow, something about their their clothing and so on. So I think there is that illusion there. But the other thing that is is interesting to me about the possibility that there are links between these two storylines is you talked about this idea of the, the sort of truth that drives people mad. Well, the character of the tutor in Arcadia, we understand, is driven mad. He gets to the point where he he uh, he becomes a hermit, supposedly, or maybe he doesn't. They build this kind of hermitage, which is like a fake... Uh, Bit of landscape architecture. And then there's this question of who's going to live in the hermitage. And it turns out that he essentially goes mad and goes to live in the hermitage. Well, obviously, we've had Picard earlier on in the series described as the hermit of Labar. So there's a kind of connection there. We've got a hermit uh, in both stories who's one who's been driven to that by uh, personal tragedy. Now, in the case of Septimus the tutor in Arcadia, it's the death of this young girl who he's teaching, who he's also. Slightly, Well, she's certainly fallen in love with him. And there's an element of kind of romantic attachment between the two of them. And she dies tragically on the eve of, I think, her 17th birthday. So very young, kind of, I suppose, enacting this idea that even in paradise, death still waits for everyone, you know, so she sees this kind of young girl who's, who's dying. But the other key strand of the play really is this uh, interest in chaos theory and fractal um, equations and iterations, and the idea that nature can be understood uh, through this kind of new form of maths. And the idea that the play puts forward is that this girl basically made this discovery effectively, you know, many hundreds of years before anyone else did, but it was lost. Her her kind of uh, her brilliant insight was lost because she happened to die but so the play is all about you know whether you can understand nature through studying maths and so on and this idea of a fractal a fractal being something where the the whole is kind of a multiplication of the part of course is absolutely key to Picard because how do we get this whole generation of synths we get it through fractal neuronic cloning where basically one tiny piece of data is used to create this whole community of androids so i don't know maybe it's a bit of a stretch on the other hand it crossed my mind michael shabon may well have seen the play arcadia and it may have stuck in his head one way or another and it is as i would say an absolutely fabulous play if you can uh go and see it go and see it if you can't go and read it don't listen to the version on audible which i made the mistake of mm. doing to refresh my memory this week because it's uh maybe if you're an american listener it might not bother you but this is a play uh, set in an english country house and the version that's available on audible is an american theater company doing a production of it which they you know the performances are fine but the accents are terrible
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> so i would not recommend that one is it, but is it a bit keanu reeves in dracula
0: going on slightly is it well, it's, like it's that? hit and oh, miss
1: so, so some of them actually okay. it's
0: it's mostly hit but it's just the odd word that kind of really <laughs> jumps out but others it, it, yeah. it just feels wrong it feels i've yeah. seen many yeah. productions of this play some better than others and it has always you know completely floored me with the brilliance of the play this version i think the the performers slightly got in the way of the play to some extent so i wouldn't particularly oh, recommend it but it is a very interesting play whether that's a bit of a stretch to say it's an influence on Picard, I don't know. But there are these strange thematic resonances between the two that made me think that is actually more than just a tiny possibility.
1: Well, it being it being someone like Michael Chabon, like you say, it it wouldn't surprise me. You know, I I can I can see that as a poss- as a strong possibility. It does sound really interesting. I didn't know anything about that, so I, I will look that up if I can. And it's I think there are there are definite like the whole idea of the of the positronic neuron for me that's a little bit also a bit like the spark of life the the spark of 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 god essentially you know i think i think to the um that the famous uh, painting on the Sistine Chapel, you know, of the the two fingers meeting. Um, I can't remember. I've been to the Sistine Chapel, but I can't remember the name of that painting. And um, the creation of Adam, maybe I think it is by um, which we get in discovery essentially in the, yeah. the credits of Discovery, though not Picard,
0: interestingly. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. But it, it, it all goes back to that similar idea of of the, the this data almost. The one thing that I made, I think I mentioned this on my other podcast to make it so that data. It, for a lot of this up, up maybe until the final scene he's f- heavily mythologized for me in this season you know he becomes a mythical figure you know there are there are references you know it, whether it's Kestra remembering the adventures on the enterprise and all the all the things that Data liked and she's she, he's like a mythical character for her now because she never met him and he died years ago you know to the point that Picard remembers him to Soji and the and Darge and all these kind of things he is he is he is a mythical being almost and he does the idea that part of data is used to spark life and create and set and set this whole thing in motion essentially is fascinating because it it takes a character who by the end is very recognizably the the and you know the android we know when when he has that sequence with picard but up until that point it's like he is almost like a synthetic higher being who is who's who they use the power of, and they use the mind of, and they use the spirit of. If you want to get into that kind of idea, to create life, and I think that happening in in this you know vision of Arcadia, this failed, this flawed utopia, where like you say, everyone they do dress like they're in the classical world. I I think I said I thought at the time. They look they look like it looked like a planet that Kirk, Spock and McCoy would have beamed down to. You know in in the original series, you know and found them all in garb and that kind of thing a classical garb like like ancient Greece. And I think that's all very intentional. You know in that it's trying to suggest that you know this this is a place where life is being created and I mean I suppose as well that ties into the idea of the golem, doesn't it? And Picard's fate ultimately. But there is there are interesting ideas going on with all of this.
0: Well, I think the Golem is the other big, interesting idea, as you say, that gets put in there. Now, one of the things that struck me, obviously, Michael Chabon is a you know Jewish writer, very interesting kind of. uh, Jewish culture and and themes and so on. And so I believe it's his wife who actually has a story credit on part one of this um, double episode. Now, I don't know what, whether that means, did they bash out the story together? Did she contribute? Often that means that someone contributed some quite key element to the story. Uh, So it crossed my mind, that could, you know, maybe she brought in the golem. Who knows? But bringing a golem into Star Trek, I mean, calling it a golem is quite a bold move because a golem is a kind of concept in sort of this ancient mystical... Jewish sort of folklore. It's, I think it's Kabbalah, really, rather than kind of more official Judaism, if you know what I mean. It's sort of slightly the dark arts uh, side of all that. There's an episode of The X-Files uh, with, that features a golem, yeah. I believe. Kaddish. Is that right, Tony? There Kaddish. You go. Yeah. Season I mean, four, and episode 15. Is, <laughs> there you go. And and very <laughs> interestingly, Michael Shabon in his book Maps and Legends, which is an interesting book of essays uh, and obviously gives the episode Maps and Legends its title – writes a whole essay about golems. It's called something like Golems I Have Known, which he represents as a piece of autobiography, but then at the end basically concedes is entirely or at least maybe not entirely, but largely made up and, and essentially a work of fiction. But he talks about this idea that his uncle, I think, was crafting a golem in the basement of his house at one point and he, Michael Shaven was convinced he'd brought it to life. But there's this idea of, you know, the sort of magical spark that brings this uh, it's kind of Frankenstein, basically brings this dead thing to life, which obviously is a big theme for the show generally. But what Shaban said, which I thought was interesting, was that the act of creating a golem for these sort of Jewish mystics or whatever, it wasn't really about Doing magic and creating this entity that that you know walked around and lived like a kind of a Frankenstein or whatever, it was a sort of he describes it as an exercise in imagination. Now imagination is key to the resolution of this storyline. You know you've got uh, Picard telling Soji you don't, she's lacks imagination. They've got this magical tool that uses imagination to kind of fix all the narrative problems the episode has got into. Now Shaban is basically saying that the act of creating this body even knowing that the magic won't work, is somehow a creative act in its own right. Because, and he describes it as being effectively like God sculpting Adam in the Garden of Eden, essentially, again, you know. So again, we're kind of brought back to that idea of Eden. And it just strikes me, I mean, not only, obviously it's it's key to Star Trek, this idea of creating a new life form. I mean, we've had, um Data was a new life form. We had Picard saying, now we've got a new generation of new life forms. So there's this kind of theme of the creation of of new, in terms of sort of, the history of of human culture in a sense. So you've got this classical illusion, you've got going back to ancient Greece and so on. Um, you've got this sort of idea of of the Garden of Eden, of Genesis, of the creation of, of Adam and so on. And then in the resurrection of Picard, you've got, I mean, we started this conversation on Easter Sunday. Uh, you've got this Christ-like image, basically, of the man who dies and goes away for a while and then comes back resurrected. So it's almost like you've got these three... Points in human civilization somehow that are all
1: being referenced, almost layered on top of each other somehow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, multiple, multiple references, and I, th- I think that's that's why it ultimately is is quite. Again, it's another one of those episodes. I think that has a lot of interesting ideas that fall prey to the fact that there's a lot going on, and I, I don't know if you can really get into a lot of the detail with them. To be honest, I mean, I, I, I found I found the 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 like you say the reference to the golem particularly surprising in terms of it, you know, that exact word because I think that is very specific, and it, it brings about a lot of illusions. You know, it, it brings it, and 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 I think the big cuz the idea of uh, part of the idea of the golem particularly is that it's it it's it's a, it's a it's a representation of someone i mean in that x-files episode you mentioned the golem is a a a husband who's killed and he's resurrected but he doesn't really have his soul anymore he's kind of just walking around with the body of this this jewish man but he's he, and he's disconnected from the world and i think that's to then Put Picard in that, but not follow that through is interesting because he 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 the the suggestion at the end is that he's still and it's caused a lot of questions, hasn't it this immediately amongst fan circles is it still Picard? I mean there's even a debate going on about whether or not Picard now should have a separate memory alpha page for Golem Picard, you know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and there's a big yeah. debate going on about that, and it's a bit like well. You know, it's getting into some real metaphysical, philosophical questions about whether this is the same man. Even though the episode for me wants you to believe it is, the episode for me is just saying his old body wore was worn out. He's got a new one. Don't worry about it. Same guy. Don't worry about it. It's only it's it's just the same as if he transported down to a planet. His molecules are taken apart and he's put back together again. So I think it, a lot of this, what you believe in terms of this, depends on your stance from a philosophical point of view. Actually, which is interesting. Well, also, someone raised the
0: practical question, what did they do with Picard's body?
1: Yeah. Because it's not like
0: when you get beamed somewhere and the old one disappears and the new one arrives in its place. And obviously, we know with Thomas Reich, you end up with two and there's kind of chaos. But, uh, you know, the Picard that died had a body that, you know, decayed. And did they bury it? You, you know what? I mean, that's the kind of um, sort of lingering question. Picard, when he wakes up in his golem body, might want to know, you know, what happened to the old body. But it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the golems traditionally... well i I don't know my understanding was a golem is not a vessel to put an existing consciousness or catra or whatever you want to call it into it's more it is more like a kind of more like a sort of fairly basic sort of robotic thing that you create and and often in these stories about golems they go wrong and they cause trouble and they have to be you know sort of put back in the box one way or another but it, it does sort of feel like we go from the the golem story the sort of you know Jewish story, or you know, in a sense, the Old Testament story to the New Testament story that we get at the end, where Picard is just sort of magically resurrected. And obviously, we've had that in Star Trek before. I mean, we had that with Spock. We nearly had. We thought we were. The weird thing is, we thought we were going to get it with Data. Uh, you know, the end of Nemesis leaves open the idea that Data is going to be resurrected in a new body. Uh, and then, in fact, what this whole season sort of leads up to is a kind of bait and switch where we almost think that I, I almost thought we were going to get Data back at the end of this season, to be honest, because they talked about him so much that they would finally find a way to bring him back to life. Then we get Data finally being, you know, switched off eventually. Uh, and Picard being brought back in a new body, weirdly, which is not something I think anyone saw coming. So it's this weird, there's something very strange about that that decision, because it absolutely you're sort of wrong-footed as an audience and have been for 20-odd years in a way in terms of what to expect. But instead we get, you know, we get Picard sort of doing a Spock basically and coming back from the dead. And Nicholas Meyer uh, famously refused to do, I mean, he talked to me about this on the podcast a few weeks ago, refused to do Star Trek Three because he said, uh, I can't do Resurrection. I don't believe in that. Um, I'm not, you know, I can't, I can't work on that story, uh, basically. Uh, it's meaningless to me. Now, obviously, we got Spock back and that was great. And he went on to have various other adventures, you, you know, and he, he was sort of doing the same thing again. And I don't know whether... Seriously, I'm curious. I mean, Maya was saying, you know, Maya, also a Jewish writer, I think an atheist Jew, as I imagine Michael shaven probably is. I'm curious, you know, does the idea of resurrection... I don't really have a problem with them bringing back Spock or, or with them bringing back... I'm glad they didn't kill off Picard for a start because I'm looking forward to next season and so on. But... It does make me wonder, does someone, for example, does someone with a Christian faith view the resurrection of a character like Picard differently than someone who doesn't? Do, do you know what I mean? Does it make a difference if you actually believe that's possible? Because for me, there is a slight sticking point that, okay, there are lots of things in Star Trek that I know aren't possible, but um, this is one big thing to add to the list of things that I don't believe are possible that is possible do you know what i mean and it's yeah if if you're primed to think that that's actually happened anyway
1: then maybe that affects how you read a story like that i don't know yeah maybe i mean i i'm not i don't have any religious faith myself so i don't really hold a lot of stuck in in those ideas and but it didn't feel like a resurrection story in a way to me it felt like it just happened to be a, I suppose, for want of a better term, and maybe this is a pun, a Deus ex machina, in order to, <laughs> in order to, kind of pay off the the story that feels like they did they did too early. I mean, I almost feel like they 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 pulled the trigger on Picard's health too soon here. That they could have saved this till the final season had a really affecting sad moment where these characters he spent three or four seasons with gather round and he does actually die, you know, and he actually, and he has, you know, and because, you know, logically, I think ultimately you may want to end Picard whenever it ends with Picard's death, potentially. I think it feels like, you know we've not had a cap we've not had this happen for a captain to a captain since since kirk and kirk's death famously was was misjudged big time and if they could see their time over again i think that would have been done very very differently so picard's death logically is the next step so to actually do it here uh, it, and then have him come back without it being like spock you know with spock he 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 dies to save the ship and then he he does go through a process where he is literally sort of almost sort of reborn through like a, a quasi sort of biblical story. Whereas Picard, it feels like he's just transferred. It feels like he's just uploaded into a system and then put into another body. That's not resurrection to me. That feels like just a get out. That just feels like a way of them trying to pay off an emotional beat, but then have their cake and eat it almost and, and, and find a way to resolve the real death, which is obviously data, you know, and, and, and resolve what again was probably a bit of a misjudged story at the end of nemesis you know that that was that was an attempt to re reimagine what happens to spock that whole film is just trying to pass trying to copy the wrath of khan let's face it and it doesn't hold it doesn't hold the same power you know at all when data just blows up that you know and and, and transports picard away it's meant to be a shock sudden thing and it is but it just doesn't feel it felt it felt wrong then i i think it, i i always felt like it just it just felt like it it just didn't work for me, and and I and I think I think a lot of people have felt that way, and this was an attempt to try and reconcile that and give Data a proper send off. But then it 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 feels like it like like I say, it feels like it wants to have its cake and eat it with what happens to Picard. And and I I I have I don't have a problem I don't have a problem with it at all. I mean I'm I'm not pro- I I don't find this difficult now that he's in another body. It's, so what you know it's it's it's, just, it's 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 I can write it off just the same way that they put Professor X into another body and in the x-men films you know when he's when he when he he dematerializes or whatever which is you know another strange patrick stewart parallel but ultimately i wonder what the point of this whole story was for picard if you're just not going to really have him die like (laughs) actually like actually die at the point it feels logical for that to happen
0: i agree and it feels it feels oddly as if someone changed their mind somewhere along the way But they are absolutely insistent. I mean, I've seen Akiva Goldsman sort of swearing blind that this is not the case, that this was always the intention was to take him on this journey, touch on his mortality, and then give him a new lease of life, effectively. And I suppose it is at least, it is kind of seeded, this idea of resurrection. You know, even in a very early episode, um, I noticed on a rewatch, Narek says to Soji about, you you know, the reasons that people are working. They have this conversation about why people would come to the Borg Cube. And he says the Borg Cube is a graveyard and people come for different reasons. You know, some of them are basically there as grave robbers. He He says... she's working there because she pins her hopes on resurrection. You know, this idea that those who are lost or who are dead can be kind of revived somehow. And arguably that is, you know, the Borg, again, you've got this kind of Frankenstein thing. You've got kind of life from beyond, you know, where, where life seemed to be possible. A lot of people have said they thought the Borg in this season seemed a bit random or a bit sort of underused. But in some ways there is a parallel. They're, okay, they're not being paralleled so much with the Synths, but the Gollum is not a million miles away from a Borg. There, you know, There are these kind of loose parallels at least or these kind of um echoes between different elements of the story mm.
1: yeah 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 i th- yeah. I, sp- I, I suppose that's true there there it is it is seeded in the idea of rebirth i definitely i, th- I think you know on a, on a thematic level i understand why why it's done in that sense that it's all it is about picard re finding that sense of life again i get that I get that, but I don't know if it needs to be literalized For <laughs> I me, mean, I don't. I don't know if he literally needed to to get a new body and and not and get rid of the Euromodic syndrome or whatever it was, and off he goes for another 10, 20 years. You know, I. I but you know, that, that's more of a personal sort of.
0: It's not the ending of the think, season really. that I was expecting at all. But I think I, you know, am managing to reconcile myself to. I do at least think it's interesting. They didn't go an obvious route. They took some slightly strange decisions uh and in a way i applaud them for that and i am curious to see uh you know where this takes us in season two and who knows in a you know a year or two's mm. time maybe mm. we'll be sitting down that we've hit about two hours again today uh <laughs> and wrapping our heads <laughs> around <told> season <laughs> two of Picard and seeing you know <laughs> how yeah. many hours of discussion we can get out of it i think we will Well, before we go, Tony, is there anything else you wanted to flag up about these final couple of episodes? Anything else that jumped out at you?
1: Well, uh, one tiny thing and then one other little thing. Picard using uh, Shakespeare was quite nice when he's saying goodbye to Data in that final scene. And I suppose the whole, you know, rebirth thing, he's worth it for that final 20 minutes, like you say. It was unorthodox, but it was really nicely done, I think. So him, um, him using that you know, saying the Shakespeare quote, we are such stuff as dreams are made on. You know, he's, he's lovely, you know, for various meta reasons about Patrick Stewart and his Shakespearean background as well. Um, so that was nice. The other one was that the mention of, um, that when Narek, and I mentioned it earlier, when Narek's telling the story of the Romulan myth, he mentions Ganmadan, which is their version of, uh, the Romulan version of essentially like Judgment Day, you know, the apocalypse or, Ragnarok, you know, if you go into sort of uh, Norse myth and thing like things like that. I thought that was interesting that there is there is maybe a shared sort of intergalactic idea of all races having their apocalypse moment, you know, of having their myth in their culture that there will be an a, an event someday that is equivalent to what we know in our, you know, historical and and you know, a lot of earth-based cultures and religions all have different versions of that myth. So, it's interesting that that's Across the galaxy, <laughs> potentially
0: as well, and that we've we've kind of gone from you know Genesis and the Garden of Eden through to Apocalypse in the space of one yeah. episode, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting point, and definitely yeah, another big uh, theme underlying the series. The other thing, of course, in the finale that struck me is that we've got Brent Spiner again playing, uh, not just playing another Sung, but playing a, a character not too dissimilar from the one he played on Enterprise. You, you know, this yeah. kind of mad scientist with a group of. Uh, super powered, slightly yeah. scary, slightly sketchy children who he may or may not be able to control. There's definitely a kind of riff on that storyline going on here.
1: Yeah, Brent Spiner's stuck in trade now. At least he's not. At least he's not a bad guy in a way. Sort of in in this mm. sort of is sort of isn't. <laughs> I quite By liked that. I know some
0: people were expecting him to turn out to be a real villain, uh, but I quite like the fact that he was just. I don't know. He seemed like a, a, a basically decent guy didn't he although Mm -hmm. i suppose he admittedly he was willing to go along with the plot to eradicate (laughs) organic life in the galaxy so maybe we're being a bit generous to him yeah we'll be by by the end of part two we've all of that is forgiven because he switched sides (laughs) and we're kind of able to sort of sit around and laugh and joke with him but um yeah i don't know maybe maybe sketchier than than he seems (laughs) he seemed the most brent spiner of all brent spiner's characters on star trek somehow it felt to me the closest to to home somehow anyway it's been a pleasure talking about um season one of star trek picard this episode as indeed it was last episode uh but that's not all we've been talking about on trek fm this week so have a listen at what else you might have missed out on on the network
1: previously on trek.fm the orb
0: but of all the section 31 that we're getting in new track this feels the most legitimate this feels like the section 31 yeah. that we we know from yeah. Deep Space 9 and it doesn't
1: feel like oh we're just going back to the well again because you know even Ira said you know I know they've used it in the movies but we created this Earl Grey uh, not nope, still no clue it's going I'm going to kick myself when I get it Yeah tell us Jim
0: Kirsten Dunst
1: Oh, oh Kirsten my danced. gosh ah. of course I hate the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I knew that. What's wrong with us? The best L'Occano performance in all seven seasons, in my opinion. Literary Treks. If this were an episode of Voyager, and I actually think this book would make an interesting episode of Voyager, and like we kind of hinted at, maybe it's very much like an episode mm-hmm. of voyager that we'll talk about. I don't think it would have been called 7 of 9, right?
0: No. No, it would have to have like a one-word title to fit in with most of the other voyager episodes, so you can't really <laughs> remember which one it's about. Yeah, it would just be called, it would be called 7. That's what it would be. To the journey. She did actually uh-huh. mean what she said mm. in the back in the space just before they die. I don't know, I just kind of like it. <laughs>
1: It's just I'm going to tell you I love you just before I die. Not
0: a minute sooner. <laughs> it's like, at least I don't have to do all the ramifications if I'm dead. <laughs> well, that backfired. Or maybe she was just like, at least I don't have to hear him not say it if we're going to die. So what you're saying is next time that we ask someone to marry them, or anyone who asks someone to marry them, they should do it on death's door of like some kind yes. of crazy adventure like jumping off a bungee jump. you're in the middle of being eaten by a shark or something
1: i love you gobble 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 (laughs) (laughs) and that's what else is happening on trek.fm check out all these shows and
0: join the conversation about your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an apple user be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone in most third-party apps and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek FM and on Facebook at facebook.com Slash Trek FM. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's patreo ncom com slash trekfm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patron's website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at, at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at, at Clara Jean MC, and Tony at, at AJ Black Writer.
1: You're blended, all right.